to Wendell's World in Sports. Let's be great. Let's be great. An entertaining and provocative look into the world of sports and beyond. Play our game. Play hard, but stay poised. Please feel free to go over to Apple iTunes and rate and review. Your feedback is welcome. Go rock this thing, huh? Love you, man. Go get it. And now, the host of the program from the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, Wendell Wallace. I'm six foot four with the strength of Samson. I'm running over Negroes like I'm Rodney Hampton. Wendell's World and Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Hey, who shot JR? I did right in the melon so I can own a ranch and start fucking Sue Ellen. What is going on? Wendell's World and Sports. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things to discuss today in the world of sports. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur, mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World and Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Me, I'm a Wendell Wallace, Wendell's World in Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Namaste. Konnichiwa. Wassalam alaikum. Shalom, my brothers and sisters. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. I hope everything is doing all right. I hope that you're doing everything that you need to do to make this world, to make your space, to make your place, to make your household, to make your neighborhood, to make everything that you need, that you want, that you desire, a much better place, a much better area, a much better chi, a much better everything as we try to move the society, as we try to move this world in a much better place, free of racism, free of ignorance, free of stupidity, free of stereotypes, free of discrimination, free of oppression. We can do it, not for us, not for my generation, but the younger generation and so on and so forth, moving this society in a better place. So in 50, 60, 80 years from now, when the kids, when your kids' age, when your great, 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 great grandkids are in school and they take a look and they're reading about U.S. history or they're reading about world history, whether it be an elementary, junior or high school, if this world is still around, if this planet still exists, they could take a look at the history books and they could take a look at what's happening, what's going on today and say, man, that was some bullshit right there. <laughs> it was just some, I'm so glad that we have progressed to where we respect and we love everybody who has love and peace and unity and acceptance and education in their hearts. So let's see what we can do in this world to get to that plateau, to get to that goal, to get to that mountaintop. Because I've been to the mountaintop. No, I haven't. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. A lot of things going on. I'm going to get the NBA out of the way. I'm going to talk a little bit about the NBA Finals. I know it seemed like it happened like 15 months ago, but I'm still going to try to get the NBA Finals out of the way. Talk about my man Giannis Antetokounmpo. Talk about what the direction is going to be for the Phoenix Suns and Chris Paul. Talk about Chris Paul's legacy. Talk about a little NBA free agency or trade rumors. What's going to be happening with uh, Bradley Beal, the Los Angeles Lakers. Man, talking about stealing someone's thunder. The Milwaukee Bucks win the championship. And then 15 seconds later, the Lakers are up there talking about they're interested in Cal Lowry. They're interested in DeMar DeRozan or DeMar DeRozan would be interested in joining the Lakers. And the Lakers are interested in Chris Paul. And the Lakers are interested in all these guys. So, it's almost like, you know, for Los Angeles Lakers fans, I know you guys are like New York Yankee fans and such where you're just annoying beyond belief and you believe that it's your birthright that the Lakers have to be one of the elite franchises of the NBA. The humiliation that happened the past seven years before you got LeBron James where you were going through draft picks after draft picks that weren't panning out, whether it be D'Angelo Russell, whether it be Lonzo Ball, whether it be Julius Randle, whether it be any of those guys 
when you were going through the Luke Walton years where the Lakers were winning anywhere between 19 and 23, 24 games year after year after year in the league, incredibly was doing fantastic, even though the Lakers were a joke, were an afterthought, were irrelevant during that time. I know you guys feel that the world isn't right. I know you feel that everything is not correct, is not kosher, if the Lakers are not dominating, if the Lakers aren't the main deal in the NBA. So you have to go ahead and try to steal the thunder and start talking about all these moves you're going to make. We've got AD, we've got LeBron, and if it wasn't for... The Anthony Anthony Davis injury, if it wasn't for LeBron James tweaking his ankle, we would be the one toasting the champagne. We would be the one telling Giannis another year, another failure. We would be the one talking about we're, you know, the greatest franchise and all the sports and all that kind of nonsense. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. But, you know, the Lakers doing their thing, trying to uh, steal the spotlight. I'll get into that in the second segment of the program. Also want to talk about ESPN, just a little bit. Maria Taylor is no longer with the uh, with the company. She's now doing N- NBC. She's on the Olympic coverage, and I talked about that a little bit. I want to talk about some of the replacements. I saw an interesting article on in on the website, awful announcing about who is going to be replacing Maria Taylor in terms of the sideline reporting, in terms of some of the hosting duties, and so in terms of uh, some of the jobs some of the responsibilities that taylor had at the worldwide leader and the list of people who this may speculates uh, not not uh not anything in terms of uh you know concrete or anything like that but he's just speculating of all the talent that's on the roster for espn these could be the folks who could eventually take her place i'm going to uh give my thoughts and opinions about that because it's like man okay whatever man you know some things never change so i'll go ahead and talk about that that's going to be in the last uh, segment of the podcast i'm going to save my college football talk i'm going to save really getting into the nfl for the next podcast i'm going to put a podcast out in a couple of days because i have to talk about the well, i don't have to i don't have to do anything i want to talk about the uh, nba draft and some other things that are going on and like i said i'm excited about the start of the NFL football season. And what, what, what what's going on here, man? What What's happening here? If you're a football fan, if you're watching the NFL, if you're closely monitoring the NFL, even during the offseason palaver that goes on concerning these teams and concerning these players, out of all the speculation that happened throughout the summer, man, where is Aaron Rodgers going to go? Are they going to trade Aaron Rodgers? What's up with Deshaun Watson? Is he going to uh, report to camp, all this other stuff? Let me see here. Deshaun Watson reports to camp because he doesn't want to get fined. I'm here because I just don't want to get fined. And Aaron Rodgers decides that, you know what, I guess I will play for the Green Bay Packers for an, another year at least. So all of this nonsense, all of this bullshit, cry me wolf, all of these things. And it's like a whole bunch of something leading to nothing. So I will uh, talk a little bit more about that on my next podcast, which should be coming out in the next couple of days. But I want to concentrate on this podcast right here because this is the one I'm talking about, right? This is the one that I'm bringing to you, right? I'm not going to be looking down the line. I'm looking at what's happening right now. And so officially, last week, the NBA Finals or is, was over. The NBA season is over. Your Milwaukee Bucks, no, not your Brooklyn Nets. No, not your, <coughs> excuse me, no, not, not your Los Angeles Clippers. No, not your Los Angeles Lakers. No, not your Miami Heat. The Milwaukee Bucks, are the NBA champions, beat the Phoenix Suns 105-98 last Tuesday night to win the series four games to two. Bucks became the fifth team in NBA history to overcome uh, 
finals where they were trailing 2-0. First team to do it since the Miami Heat did it against Dallas in 2006. And for the Bucks, they didn't even have to help with the referees like Miami did for them to come back and win the series. Bucks outscored Phoenix 63-51 in the second half, being outscored uh, 31-13 in the second quarter after being down 47-42 at the half. No big deal. Giannis said, you know what, man? Time for me to shine. Time for me to do my thing. Time for me to be a superstar. Time for me to elevate my presence. Time for me to own this bad boy. Time for me to own this league. Sorry, LeBron. Sorry, KD. Sorry, everybody else. As for right now, this league belongs to me. I am the king and the owner of the NBA universe, Biatches. I'm the owner. You're paying rent, bitch. Considering the circumstances, man, let's just think about this, all right? Considering the circumstances, I'm speaking about the game. I'm speaking about, you know, everything that comes down to it. I'm thinking about the con uh, consequences. And the Decupo had one of the best games in NBA history. What? When the, what the, hyperbole, hyperbole alert. What the fuck are you talking about? 50 points, 14 rebounds, five block shots, shot 16 for 25 from the field, 17 of 19 field goals. He was shooting 55% from the line during the postseason. Yeah, he scored 33 of the 50 points in the second half. Yeah, all those things are great, Wendell. All those things are awesome. All those things are fantastic, impressive. I'm not going to take anything away from the man. But you're going to sit up here and try to do me some bullshit like this was one of the greatest games in NBA history? That this was one of the greatest games in NBA Finals history? Can we slow down a little bit? Can we stop being in the moment here where we start making these ridiculous statements like that? Well, hold on for a second. And I, and I know where you're coming from. Basketball historians, basketball folks, people who know the game of basketball, people who follow the game of basketball, people who play the game of basketball, people who love the game of basketball— I, I, I envision right now your eyes rolling. I can see you laughing at me right now. That's okay. That won't be the first time. won't be the last time. But let me explain where I'm coming from. Because you're going to be speaking about, you're going to be up now, right now you're Googling. Right now you're sitting there talking about, let me see. But first of all, Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points. So, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know where Wendell's coming from on that one. Second of all, Wilt Chamberlain once had 55 rebounds in the game. And he did it against Bill Russell, the greatest winner in sports history, so I don't know whatever the hell you're talking about. Yeah, you know what? Will Chamberlain could own the first. If we're speaking about the greatest games ever played from a statistical standpoint, Will Chamberlain would probably be owning the top 20 spots of greatest games ever played. Yeah, scored 100 points against the New York Knicks on March 2nd, 1962. Yeah, he once grabbed 55 rebounds in the game against Bill Russell in the Boston Celtics before. Triple doubles were a thing. He had a triple double in 1968, speaking about Wilt Chamberlain, the big dipper, where he had 25 points, 22 rebounds, and 21 assists. He also had 840.40 rebounds. 40.40 rebound. <laughs> rebound games. Eight of them. A game against the Baltimore Bullets. February 24th, 1967. The man had 42 points along with 30 rebounds and 10 assists. And oh yeah, he went 18 for 18 from the field. Are you fucking kidding me? As James Brown is playing in the background. No, I'm on the, I'm on the air right now. I can't be bothered. The man went 18 for 18 from the field, 42 points, grabbed 30 rebounds and had 10 assists. So Wendell, are you talking about a guy in Giannis Adenikupa who was 50, 14 and five with block shots? That's great. 
How the hell can you say that game was better than Will Chamberlain having a triple-double where he went 18 for 18 from the field and had 30 rebounds? Where are you coming from? What game are you... What, 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 what have you been smoking? Michael Jordan's best game that he's ever played. You could say Game 5 of the NBA Finals. 1997 NBA Final finished with uh, 38 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists. Clutch stealing Game 3. That was the game where uh, he had food poisoning in a series that was tied 2-2. Two to two, So the importance of the game was astronomical for him to do what he did while being physically limited because of illness. LeBron James' best games, if you want to talk about even bringing in statistical in terms of uh, mixing that in with the importance of the game itself, the 2013 NBA Finals, Game 7 against the San Antonio Spurs, a series in which James and the Heat were down three games to two, where LeBron and the Heat were going for back-to-back championships. LeBron scored 37 points, 12 of 23 shooting from the field, 5 of 10 from the three-point line, grabbing 12 rebounds, dished out four assists, hit a couple of really big clutch left-side seventeen-foot jumpers to secure the victory. Because the Spurs were going under the pick and roll. So LeBron said, okay, I'll step back here from 1921 feet on consecutive uh, possessions. Left side and shoot that jumper that you're giving, giving it to me. Fantastic. Game 7, 2016, NBA Finals against Golden State. We're talking about importance here. A game where if Golden State wins this, they go down as far as many people are concerned. The greatest team we've ever played based on the fact that they won 73 games that season. James, on the road, Game 7, had 27 points, 11 rebounds, 11 assists, and one of the greatest iconic blocks in NBA Finals history to help Cleveland win their first championship since 1964. Cleveland! This is for you! I mean, that's right up there with anything is possible! So... Again, Wendell, what are you talking about? 50 points, 14 rebounds by Giannis? Nice. Fantastic. But one of the greatest games in NBA history? Come on, man. What the fuck are you talking about? Have you even forgotten Bill Russell? I'm not one of these young cats. I'm not one of these guys who think the league started when Michael Jordan showed up or for another generation. The league started when Magic Johnson uh, showed up. Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Hey, man, I'll even go back to the greatest winner in sports, Bill Russell. There was a Game 7 in 1962 against the St. Louis Hawks where Bill Russell in a game in which Boston won in overtime 125-123 where the combination, backcourt combination of Bill Sharman and Bob Cousy went 5 for 40 from the field. The only reason why the Celtics won that championship, won that Game 7, which gave Boston four championships in a row because Bill Russell had... 30 points and 40 rebounds. 30 points and 40 rebounds. So, Wendell, what the fuck are you talking about as far as saying that Giannis and Denikupo, again, what he did was amazing. What he did was great. What he did was fantastic. What he did was awe-inspiring. What he did was one of the best playoff performances of the season. But, damn, how about Kevin Durant? What he did in Game 5 in the second round of the NBA playoffs this season the game that he had I mean come on man what what the fuck are you talking about let me explain all of this all right number one I said he had one of the best games in NBA history I didn't say it was the best but those games that I just mentioned those unbelievable moments that I just mentioned when you spoke about Michael Jordan's performance in game five of the 1970 1997 NBA finals when you talk about LeBron James in the 
games that I just mentioned. You got to put right there along with Game 7 with Bill Russell with the Boston Celtics against the Los Angeles Lakers. Excuse me, against, yeah, against the Los Angeles Lakers, not the St. Louis Hawks, excuse me. Oh, hold on for a second. Yeah, it was against the, um, it was against the Los Angeles Lakers. My bad, my bad. But yeah, so when you go ahead and you start speaking about all of those unbelievable games and those unbelievable moments for what Giannis did, considering that Milwaukee was trying to win his first championship in 50 years, the fact that they had been down 0-2 in the series, the fact that Giannis has been coming in as far as with his health is concerned, he wasn't 100% because of the knee that many people thought would put him out for an entire year, the knee that he injured against the Atlanta Hawks, which caused him to miss the final two games of that season, the performance that he put on, and the performance for the series that he had, then the job that he did, the game that he had in game six, yeah, it's right up there. I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say it's the greatest. I'm going to say it's one of the greatest. Now, you can barbershop talk, and you can go ahead and argue all you want to about who's greatest and who had a greater game and all this kind of stuff. You can put it into context, and if you're really smart enough and you spend enough time, and if you really care about it, you can make good Solid points for either side. But I'm just saying what I saw on Tuesday night, last Tuesday night, was something that uh, will go down in the annals of, of, of the NBA as one of the greatest games ever played when everything, with all the circumstances, when everything that's involved in that story, in that plot, in that movie, in that TV show, that is the NBA Finals Game 6 in Milwaukee versus Phoenix, what Giannis did was absolutely Marvelous, outstanding, historic, unbelievable. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So for the series, and then the Kupo finishes with 35 points average per game, 13 rebounds, 5 assists, shooting 62% from the field. The first player in NBA Finals history to reach those numbers. Atina Kupo, as I mentioned before, hyperextended his left knee in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Atlanta Hawks. Missed the last two games of that series and came back and did what he did. I will say this now. One of the greatest performances in playoff history, if you think about it, if you think about the journey that Giannis and the Bucks took to win that championship. Not saying it's the greatest, but I'm saying it's right up there in terms of when you speak about, when you talk about, when you discuss 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, you have to include in, wow, remember that? Or, wow, that was fantastic. Or, wow, that was really awesome. You have to talk about the performance by Giannis. When we put in the context, where does Giannis fall in terms of, you know, all-time greats when his career is done, regardless of what he does after this, uh, <clears throat> this season and these finals and these playoffs, these are some of the things that are going to be used to either negate or enhance the argument in terms of a Denikupo being one of the greatest, being a top 50, being a top 30, being a top 20, being the greatest, this, that, and the other player of his generation. When all of these things are going to be put into the stew to mix up the feel, the smell, the taste, the broth of what the argument is going to be for Denikupo and his legacy in the game. Going to come back to the uh, 2021 NBA playoffs because look in 2020 and 2019 his first two years were coming off the MVP back-to-back -back MVP now this is where okay the first five six years of his journey in the NBA coming out of nowhere in Greece that was cute 
That was wonderful. That was awesome. That was fabulous. That was fantastic. That's a that's a good remember the Titans type story. That's a good Rudy type story. That's that's wonderful. That's awesome. But it's like, okay, once you establish yourself and got a lot of money, everybody wants to be your buddy and honey. Likes tall buildings that's called skyscrapers. Once Adenokupo got to the point where he was at the level where it's like, okay, we're, we're no longer going to go with this. Oh, isn't he nice? There's nobody from Greece. He's come in and shook the world. Okay, we, we're, we're past that narrative. That's fine. What level now are we going to be going up to? You won the MVP. You're your two-time MVP. Now it's time for you to start winning championships. That's the next level. You know, the, the narrative of somebody coming from nowhere to make it in the NBA and put up some numbers and make some money and help out your family, that's no longer something to wear that's going to be like, ooh, wow, ooh. You got to level up. And for the 2019 NBA playoffs, for the 2020 NBA playoffs, he didn't level off. He leveled, he leveled out in terms of some of the performances. He'll be the first one to tell you that. And the Milwaukee Bucks, who had the best record in the NBA, one of the best teams, at least regular season-wise, during those seasons, flamed out. Lost four in a row in the Eastern Conference Finals to the Toronto Raptors, led by Kawhi Leonard, Kyle Lowry, and that's about it. So he didn't lose to the Heatles of LeBron, D. Wade, and Chris Bosh in their prime. He didn't lose to the one-year wonders of the 2008 Boston Celtics with KG, Ray Allen, and Paul Pierce at that time. He didn't lose to uh, LeBron James and Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love of the Cleveland Cavaliers of that time. He lost to Kawhi Leonard, great player, but was injured, hobbling on a knee. Kyle Lowry, nice player, tough, gritty, determined, veteran. He lost to Pascal Siakam, up and coming, but really nothing more. He lost to Marcus Saul, a late season acquisition, and that's it. He lost to Serge Ibaka, pretty nice role player, but his better days were left in Oklahoma City. So he lost to that squad. He lost to a team in Toronto, to where in Canada that team is going to be um, that, that team is going to be revered. But in the NBA history, right now, as it stands right now, the Toronto Raptors are going to be holding the same place as the 1978 Washington Bullets, as the 1979 Seattle Supersonics, as the 1974-75 Golden State Warriors, as the uh, 2016 Dallas Mavericks, or, yeah, yeah, uh, not Dallas Mavericks, yeah, the, the Dirk Nowitzki-led uh, Dallas Mavericks of 2010, where it's like they won a championship, that's great, that's wonderful, but this didn't snowball into a dynasty. This didn't snowball to any long-term greatness. The 2000, the, 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 the championship team of the Toronto Raptors, they were the 1977 Phil, um, uh, Portland Trailblazers. You won a championship and then you move on. We don't hear anything from you either in terms of winning championships or being impactful in NBA history. So that's who Giannis lost to in 2019. Then in 2020, they got beaten five games by the Jimmy Butler-led Miami Heat in a bubble where many fans, many historians consider that to be uh, that, that season to be a bastardized season because of COVID and the conditions that the team, that the players and the franchises came back to playing in that bubble. So coming into 2021 in this playoff season, the Bucks were like, "Hey, man, you know what? We we got to go ahead and we got to do something. We got to win this championship because there's a lot of things on the line. Basically, this was a if we don't win a championship." Changes have to be made. Drafted changes have to be made. They made drafted changes in the offseason, getting Drew Holiday and doing their best to get Bogdan Bogdanovich before that fell through. 
there was a last gasp effort to show Giannis that you need to sign the Supermax contract because we are doing everything that we need to do to give you the best chance to win a, a championship. And he uh, he reciprocated by signing that five deal, that five year contract. But still, this was something where it was like, okay, Giannis, how great are you? I mean, are you truly what James Harden said, a seven feet a seven feet tall guy who can just run and jump, and that's about it? Are you a guy that can be a face of the franchise? Are you a guy that can be the true MVP when it counts? And this season, he did. This off or this uh, playoff season, he exactly was. Yeah. So if you take a look at the finals, game one, after missing a couple of games because of a hyperextended knee, he, he scored twenty points in a loss. But then in game two and three, the guy went uh, ballistic. The guy went nuclear. Had back to back forty point performances, games two and three, averaged a combined 41 and a half points, shooting 64% from the field, 12 and a half rebounds, five assists, playing 39 minutes. Again, on a knee that was so hyperextended that many people thought that he would be not out, not just for these playoffs, but also for a significant part of next season. Then in game four and five, and then the Kupo comes back, averaged a combined 29 points, 59% shooting, 11 and a half rebounds, seven and a half persists. The assists, are greater because of the attention now that Phoenix is giving toward Adenokupo. So he didn't force, he didn't do anything outside of what the team wanted him to do. He played the game that was given to him and was still able to dominate. Didn't average 40, but as I mentioned before, stayed level, stayed at about the same with the rebounds and increased his assist per game. And then also on the defensive end for game four, he gave, uh, <clears throat> that block, Bucks leading 101-99, a minute 15 remaining. Not only did he defend Devin Booker off a dribble handoff when Booker threw the lob to uh, DeAndre Ayton, and then Kupo turned around, managed to block the shot by Ayton, preserved the uh, victory. Then in game five, the iconic play of Jeru Holiday stealing the ball from Devin Booker with about 20 seconds left with Milwaukee ahead by one. Adina Kupo raced to the other end of the floor, Holiday threw that lob pass, and then the Kupo threw it down. He was fouled by Chris Paul, missed the free throw, but that preserved the victory for Milwaukee to get them in the position to close out in Game 5. The finals itself, as far as statistical-wise is concerned and impactful-wise is concerned, most dominant performance in the playoffs by an individual player since Shaquille O'Neal in the 2000 finals against the Indiana Pacers. Poor Rick Smith, still having nightmares where O'Neal scored over 30 points in every game and over 40 points in three of them. He also reached double figures and rebounds in every single game. When you're talking about game one, he had 43 points, 19 rebounds. Shaq in game two had 40 points and 24 rebounds. Poor Rick Smith, poor Dale Davis, poor Antonio Davis. Then in the decisive game, game six, he had 41 points, 12 rebounds. So for the series, Shaq averaged 38.17 rebounds, two and a half assists per game. Yeah, outside of that... Around that is Shaq in 2000, and then two decades later, Adenokupo, the championship game against the Phoenix Suns. So, and I can't say enough about Giannis. Wendell's World of Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So basically, what does this do for Giannis as far as the legacy is concerned? Where do we go with this? What's your thoughts? What's your opinion? As of right now, as I mentioned before, hey, he's the man. You know what? After game five, Kevin Durant was the best player in the NBA. How things quickly changed. Now, you can make the perception, you can make the argument that KD is still the best player in the game, but shoot. 
As of right now, Adenokupo has the jewels. And then the Kupo is, held, is holding the LOB. And then the Kupo is the man. He's the champ. He's, he's, after that performance, he's the champ. He's the man. He's the best. So what does that mean now? He's got that chip. He's got that ring. Um, where, where do we go with him now? Is this going to be a one-time hit? Are the Milwaukee Bucks one of these deals where it's kind of like, that's a nice little season. That was a nice little run. But, you know, for the most part, the, um, the, the dream is over in terms of now trying to become a dynasty. Can you have a dynasty? Can you become a dynasty in Milwaukee, of all places? I mean, that right there, if you take a look at quote-unquote dynasties, they're always in markets like the San Francisco market. They're in the uh, Miami, Florida market. They're in the Chicago, Illinois market. They're in the Los Angeles, California market. Can you really have a quote-unquote dynasty in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? Now, there's folks in San Antonio, Texas who who will you know, raise their hand and say, yeah, but for that to happen, I mean, you know, man, is Giannis going to reach Tim Duncan status? Chris Middleton going to reach Manu Ginobili status? Is Drew Holiday going to reach Tony Parker status in terms of the impact that they had on the league? The Milwaukee Bucks now have their big three. They have Giannis, they have Middleton, they have Drew Holiday. Is that going to be enough? to get them to win a couple of championships. What could we consider a dynasty now? If the Bucks over the next five years or over the next four years win, what, another one or two championships that would give them three or five years? How many times are they going to make it to the finals? We also have to equate. We also have to bring it to the mix. We also have to discuss the level of competition that's going to be played. You would only believe, you would only have to think that the Brooklyn Nets <clears throat> are only going to get themselves better if those guys can actually stay healthy and play with each other for a significant amount of time, and when I say significant in an 82-game schedule, if those guys can play maybe 55 to 60 games together as a uh, as a trio, that they would have to be uh, considered one of the strong favorites to win the Eastern Conference. We, we don't know exactly what's going to be happening with the Philadelphia 76ers if, when, they finally trade Ben Simmons, if they trade him to Portland as a C.J. McCollum acquisition swap for Ben Simmons going to be enough to propel the Philadelphia 76ers to <clears throat> championship elite status? <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, are we, what moves can the Philadelphia 76ers make to go ahead <clears throat> and become true elite contenders and not waste the prime years <clears throat> of Joel Embiid? What are, what are we doing here with that? So, you have the Boston Celtics. They're they're in rebuilding mode, I think, because of a new coach that traded Kemba Walker, relying solely mainly on <clears throat> the duo of the, the 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 duo of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Boy, my throat is something else. Hold on for a second. <clears throat> Much better. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> so we take a look. How are the Miami Heat going to um, rebound? to come off a disappointing season. So all those things have to be in the mix when you're talking about the Milwaukee Bucks first before we even think about them winning two or three more championships. The foundation built and maintained by the Bucks in signing Giannis to a long-term deal, relatively long-term. Middleton is under contract for a few more years. Holiday is under contract for a few more years. Lopez is under contract for a few more years. 
I mean, this is going to be basically just squad. And then you just have to, you know, apply, chip in, whatever with other players. We saw the, we saw the uh, contribution that Bobby Portis Jr. made uh, throughout this series and how important he was. I mean, what do we, what do we do with him? So all of these things have to uh, come into play when we're speaking about the legacy building of Giannis Adenokupo, his ability to win championships. There's other things because many people are going to make the argument and you could make a strong argument that if it wasn't for a twisted ankle by Kyrie Irving, that the Brooklyn Nets would have moved on to the Eastern Conference Finals. You could have made the argument that, that not only did the twisting of the ankle of Kyrie Irving cause the Brooklyn Nets of uh, the ability not to win that second round series against the Milwaukee Bucks. Also, James Harden was playing with a bum leg, playing with a uh, with, a, with a bad hammy, which greatly diminished his impact on the series. So people can take a look at that if you want to be a Bucks hater and say that was a asterisk type of season. Well, you know, you can go ahead and do that what you want to, but it is a valid point that you would make to say that if based off of game two, when the Nets completely emasculated and embarrassed the Milwaukee Bucks, that if that if Kyrie Irving didn't twist his ankle, then you're going to try to tell me that Milwaukee would have came back and won that game, especially if you remember in game three how ugly it was and what a dogfight it was and how small the margin was that Milwaukee won. If Milwaukee loses that game and goes down 3-0, this series is over, and we really start questioning what's going on with the Milwaukee Bucks. And then we start talking about, you know, Rick Carlisle is going to be the new head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks because Mike Budenholder is going to be uh, fired immediately after that series. So there's a lot of things that fall into this, which again, we have to equate, we have to write in, we have to think about, we have to talk about in terms of Giannis's quote-unquote legacy. Because now it's kind of like, uh, it's open for him now. Now everything, now we see Giannis in a whole new light. He's a champion. However he got there, whatever breaks he got, how fortunate he was, he's a champion. So what are we talking about here? Third player since Dirk Nowitzki, when he led uh, Dallas to the championship in 2011. Kawhi Leonard, 2019. Those are the only two players I can think about in terms of before Giannis to win a championship without either their franchise building a quote-unquote super team or drafting a quote-unquote super team or through trades or free agency, the second best player on the team is a top 10, top 15 player in the league and the third player on that group is a perennial all-star. If you think about the annals of NBA history and you think about the champions, for the most part, I mean, you have the Boston Celtics with a megastar in Magic Johnson, a superstar in Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at the time and an all-star, and James Worthy, you think about the Boston Celtics, a megastar in Larry Bird, a superstar in Kevin McHale, and an all-star in Robert Parrish. You think about the San Antonio Spurs, a megastar with Tim Duncan, a superstar with Mono Ginobili, and an all-star with Tony Parker, even though you can almost switch those two around in terms of superstar and all-star with Manu and Tony Parker. You're speaking about the Heatles of the Miami Heat uh, four-year run where they had the megastar in LeBron James, the superstar, and Dwayne Wade, the all-star, in Chris Bosh. You had the Boston Celtics winning their championship with the megastar being, oh, I don't know, what, maybe Kevin Garnett, maybe for another year or two, the superstar in Paul Pierce and the all-star in Ray Allen. So we've always, always had that dynamic with most of our NBA champions, the megastar in 
Steph Curry, the superstar in Klay Thompson, and then the all-star in Draymond Green. We've always had that. The superstar of LeBron James, the all-star of Kevin Love, and the megastar of Kyrie Irving. So we've always had that dynamic. This is very rarely the leaving the uh, script. But when the Dallas Mavericks won their championship in 2011 with Dirk, you had Dirk as being the megastar, but who was the superstar on that team? Who was the perennial all-star on that team? It wasn't Jason Terry. It wasn't Jason Kidd. It wasn't Tyson Chandler. It wasn't uh, any of those guys. When the, we can even say the Miami Heat, when you call, when the, when the Miami Heat won their championship over Dallas in 2006, Dwayne Wade, megastar, yeah, but wouldn't you say Shaq was, was Shaq by that time still, Shaq was still a perennial all-star, and you could even make the, uh, Argument that he was a uh, he was a, a, a megastar that he was a superstar in that area. But Shaq wasn't completely um, uh, out of his prime during that time. He was still a uh, handful to deal with. and still one of the best. He's still the best center in the league by far, and still one of the most dominant forces in the game. So you could say at that time when the Miami Heat won that championship in 2006 with Pat Riley that Shaquille O'Neal was the megastar and Dwayne Wade was the superstar megastar in training. They just didn't have that all-star. They had a lot of guys like Jason Williams and Gary Payton and Alonzo Mourning, who at one time were, you know, superstars and that type of thing. But by that time, they were just very good veteran role players who played their game very well. And as I mentioned before, beat a team that was led by uh, Dirk Nowitzki and the Dallas Mavericks. <coughs> so <clears throat> my point is, is that when you get to the point, when you get to the plateau, or when you get to the level that Giannis has, in terms of him being that megastar, but you know, would you think of Chris Middleton as a as a superstar? Chris Middleton is an all star. Drew Holiday is an all star, but they're a good all star. Drew Holiday is a borderline all star. Middleton is a pretty decent all star, but not a superstar. So with Giannis doing what he did, Giannis pulling up the numbers that he did, memorable will always be remembered, and and it was fantastic. And it's something to where when legacy, when we speak about legacy, Milwaukee, the fact that he won a championship in Milwaukee and not Golden State or Miami or Chicago or L.A., the fact that he did it as the man without, I mean, we, we take a look at last uh, season's NBA champion, the Los Angeles Lakers, LeBron needed AD to get the job done. LeBron wasn't going to win a super, uh, wasn't going to win a championship last year with just Chris Middleton Drew Holiday type players on his team last season. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in the legacy. Now, of course, LeBron is what, 34, 35 when he won the championship. He was in 26 like uh, Giannis was. You bring a 26-year-old LeBron James to do that same scenario, that same situation. He won the championship or he does just as well or better than Giannis. But I'm, I'm just speaking about, hey, man, you know, in, in terms of what he did, unbelievable. So... What does the path lead for Giannis? Speaking about it here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. I think that Giannis, when everything is all said and done, he has a chance to become the best foreign-born player to ever play in the league. Dirk Nowitzki, Hakeem Olajuwon, they're the leaders of the pack for that award currently. But, you know, give us seven years from now. Give, give, give me five to seven years and see what happens with uh, Giannis. He could be holding that moniker with Luca right behind him. So, a very unique skill set. Very unique. 
combination of Julia Serving, James Worthy. Everybody likes to point to Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, he has that that dominance, that physical dominance for his position like Shaq. But if you take a look at the, just the way he plays, you take a look at the dipsy dudes, you take a look at the way he palms the basketball and the way that he maneuvers it in the air and everything. You take a look at the Statue of Liberty Liberty plays that he has coming down the floor like James Worthy used to do on the right side on a, on a three-on-two break with the, with the Showtime Lakers. He is, as I mentioned before, he is Julius and James mixed in the one more than Shaq. You put Julius in the year 2020, that's what Julius Irving looks like. For those for those kids who didn't see Julius when he played, well, not too, not too many folks saw Dr. J play in the ABA with the, uh, with the, uh, with the uh, who did he play for? With the New Jersey Nets or the Nets or New York Nets or something like that. But for those of us who got to see him play in the uh, with the Philadelphia 76ers and everything, watch some old clips of Julius in his prime. And then think about Giannis in 2020. And you say to yourself, oh, okay. Yeah, 2020 Julius Irving would look just like that. A 2021 uh, would look just like that. So I think also, if you think about it, man, when we're speaking about legacies for Giannis, I think he could be the first foreign-born player to become an NBA global superstar brand. When we speak about, you know, these guys trying to build their brands, you know, LeBron being the first billion-dollar NBA player. We speak about Chris Paul. We speak about James Harden. We speak about these guys becoming a brand. You know, when we mainly speak about that, when we mainly think about that, especially with the NBA, we're speaking about American-born players. Now, Yao Yao Ming had a lot of he, – I mean, he, <clears throat> he was a brand of, of, of his – you know, he was a big brand. Him coming from China of a billion people. The NBA is so huge in China. Yao becoming the first star to play in the NBA from China. So because of that, I mean, his endorsements and his global attraction and the fact that he stood seven feet six and he had a unique skill set and all these things played into the role of him really becoming the first, I would believe, non-American-born NBA superstar to be, you know, a guy that made a lot of money outside of the NBA endorsements and everything, and really had an impact in terms of the game is concerned <clears throat> in other regions of the world. Again, for a player who was not born in America. I think Giannis has an opportunity to be even bigger. I think Giannis had the opportunity to be the LeBron James or the Michael Jordan in terms of the exposure that he brings to the league. He's got a great personality. He's got a great story. He's got a great smile. He's engaging. He's got a great personality. The background, he's the son of, a, of Nigerian immigrants who would sell sunglasses and DVDs on the streets of Athens just to make a couple of extra dollars to help his family. So he came from nothing. According to a story in the New York Times, which was interesting, he started playing basketball in the at the age of 13 in 2008, was discovered while playing in the Greek Basketball League, not the Drew League, not the AAU, didn't do the AAU circuit, didn't uh, you know go to Kentucky or Duke or Georgetown or anything like that, wasn't a one-and-done type player, wasn't the guy that was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at the age of 15, he wasn't the big next one, he wasn't the darling of the uh, uh, AAU circuit or anything like that, wasn't even in this country. And he found his way to NBA superstardom and even more in less than uh yeah, in, in less than fifteen years. Walt Disney, the Walt Disney Company, 
even secured the rights to his life story with a film set to begin production later this year about Giannis. Though I think, you know, the impact and the European impact that Giannis can have for the game, for, for the game itself, for the NBA game, it's going to be tremendous. Got to remember, sorry about this, guys. Basketball is the most popular, the second or third most popular sport in the world. I know it's right up there with football. I know it's right up there with cricket. It's it's up there. So we can start, you know, having someone who's foreign born, the impact that Giannis can have, and you bring that over to the European countries, to one of their own. I mean, that's the expansion of the game. Greg Popovich. Every time the USA loses in basketball to France or Nigeria or <clears throat> Australia or such, he's always talking about, man, when you guys come up here, you reporters start th- are up here amazed and dazed and confused and angry and, 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 and because y'all believe that, you know what, the, the Americans just show up on the basketball court and all of a sudden we're supposed to win every game by 25 or 30. Hey, man, this ain't 1958 anymore. This ain't 1992 anymore. This ain't 1996 anymore. You know, because the game is so popular, not just from those who are playing it, but also from those who are coaching it, for those who are keep teaching the fundamentals. You know, the game has caught up to us. These guys aren't scared of us anymore. I'll save the Olympic basketball talk for my next podcast because, you know, losing to France and then they're going to hopefully beat Iran by... Now, if they don't beat Iran by 60, then, then you know... <laughs> then... You know, let's revisit this stuff about, you know, the world has caught up to us and, you know, us having to work hard to uh, win a championship. <clears throat> that That's now the new norm. I mean, NBA players used to, used to play in the Olympics just so they could build their brand. Well, the NBA is going to be, you know, they got the Summer Olympics over in this foreign country. Cool. I'll go ahead and play. I'll go ahead and then, uh, commit to the uh, NBA, to the, I'm sorry, to the USA Olympic team. So I can go ahead and I can hawk my shoes and I can go ahead and hawk my brand and I can become more popular and make more money. Oh, yeah. And by the way, we'll just go ahead and just beat every team by 20 to win a championship. That's not the case anymore. So because of folks like Giannis, that gap in terms of what the USA is bringing to the table in terms of basketball is concerned and other countries is going to continue to shrink. Now, I don't think in my lifetime, if I live to be, you know, if I live another 25 to 30 years, maybe, hopefully, <clears throat> depending upon, you know, health and everything else, I, I, I don't think there'll ever be a point where Spain or Australia or any of the African countries or Canada or anything else are going to surpass the divided, ignorant, selfish states of America in terms of basketball playing is concerned. But the gap year after year after year in men's basketball is going to continue to shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. And it's because of players like Luka. It's because of players like Nikola Jokic. It's because of players like Patty Mills. It's because of players like Joe Inglis. It's because of players like Joel Embiid. And legacy-wise, top of the food chain, the most visible, the biggest star of that movement, of that revolution, is Giannis Adenokupo. So we'll see. That's the legacy going forward. Far as uh, right now, what he can go down possibly as one of the top five small forwards of all time, if you really think about it. And the game, the way the game is played today, I don't know exactly, you know, what constitutes a forward. I know, you know, you got guys like Elgin Baylor, Dr. J, Larry Bird, Rick Barry and such. 
they're classified as true small forwards. Many people want to say LeBron James is a small forward, but he's almost like a point guard forward. He's almost like a point guard shooting small forward type of player. So what? So when everything is said and done with LeBron James, where do we put LeBron James in terms of the greatest players in terms of position? Because he doesn't have a defined set position. As I mentioned before, he's a point guard scoring small forward with a power forward's body who can, I mean, you know. So with Giannis, where does everything, when everything is all set and done, where do we put Giannis? Strictly small forward? A small forward who can't shoot threes? A small forward who can't make a 15, 17 footer? That's not your stereotypical. That's not your prototypical. That's not what you think about when you think of a small forward. When you think of other great small forwards, when you think of small forwards, the greatest small forwards of all time, what do we think about? The exceptional shooting and passing of Larry Bird. The exceptional shooting and passing and offensive play of Rick Barry. The offensive wizardry of Elgin Baylor. I mean, that's that's not Giannis in terms of, that's not how he gets his points. He doesn't get his points the way Barry and Baylor and Bird got their points. And other great small forwards, when you think about small forwards in the NBA. So what are we thinking about? Do we put him at power forward? Do we put him with the Tim Duncans? Do we put him with the Carl Malones? Do we put him with the Kevin McHales? Do we put him with the uh, Elvin Hayes? Do we put him in, in that group, the Kevin Garnetts? Do we, do we put him there? All right, well, you take a look at their games. I mean, okay, evolving throughout the time. I mean, does... Adenokupo's game resemble anything like uh, Kevin McHale or Carl uh, Malone? His versatility, not just on offense, but also on defense, does that resemble anything as far as the greatest power forwards have ever played? I mean, he's more of a power forward, small forward than a lot of the great power forwards are where they wouldn't come out on the perimeter. Kevin McHale was not going to go out on the perimeter like Giannis is. He's not going to grab a rebound and then bring the ball up like Giannis can. You know, he's not going to execute the pick and roll from 21 feet away from the basket like Giannis could. I mean, Carl Malone wasn't that type of player. Tim Duncan was more of a power forward center type of combination, more than a small forward power forward type of combination. So where do we put, how do we pitch and hold, where do we define, how do we do this in terms of, Tim, uh, excuse me, in terms of Giannis and Nindakupo, when everything is all said and done, is he the, is he the godfather? Is he one of the, um, is he one of those who's going to change the position itself? Continue the evolution that uh, players like Kevin Garnett started where, you know, here was a guy who was seven feet tall, who had low post moves and had a power forwards type of look and feel, but also had the athleticism and skill to where, from time to time, he can come out and play the small forward position. Is Giannis going to continue to evolutionize that position? So that'll probably be the main thing in terms of what his legacy is going to produce along with winning championships, along with wins and losses of what he did for the franchise. The fact that, again, it's skewing the opportunity to, to play with other stores, stars and even you know, go out there and recruit others. He wasn't out there, you know, trying to get in the ear of Steph Curry or get in the ear of Paul George or making calls to other top five, top 10 players saying, hey, you know what? Is there any opportunity that you want to play in Milwaukee with me? No, he wasn't doing that. He approved the Drew Holiday deal, but believe me, Drew Holiday is not that mega superstar that we think about. So Giannis is, uh, 
Giannis has got an interesting path for him to go. But as I mentioned before, right now, it's Giannis's world. LeBron, KD, James Harden, Steph Curry, Luka, Zion, and everybody else. You guys are just tenants living in Casa Adenokupo. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Que pasa, mi amigos? Mi amo, Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Bonjour, bonsoir, monsieur. Mademoiselle. Je m'appelle Wendell Wallace. Wendell's World of Sports. So glad that you could be with us. Talking about what's happening in the world of sports. I uh, am doing this on a Monday night. Luckily, not too late. On a Monday night, um, out here on the West Coast, as I'm recording at my humble abode, my townhome here in Centennial Hills, um, Northwest Las Vegas, Nevada. Normally, Raw comes on 8 o'clock Pacific Standard Time, comes off at 11 or goes off at 11. So, you know, at that time, for the most part, it's always too late for me to do a podcast. want to give you my best, so I don't want to be half asleep while I'm going ahead and talking about what's going on in the world of sports. But today, because of the Olympics, Raw was on between 5 and 8 Pacific Standard Time. Didn't watch too much of it. Kind of a boring, ridiculous show. Not going to get into it. This is I'm not going to do any wrestling. But I, I want to say this. So because I'm doing this now, it's about 10.56, 10.56 on a Monday night to keep me going. I've got uh, uh, AEW Dark on, you know, in my, you know, as as I'm recording this just to keep me going. And I tell you, I, I am just, I just absolutely love Ty Conti. I mean, she's just, she, she's awesome. I mean, she's a great wrestler, great worker, beautiful smile, wonderful personality. I mean, she's she's one of those gals where it's like, you know, if I knew her, It'd be one of those where it was like, you know, I, I would almost want to protect her like like a brother protects a sister almost. You know, it was almost like, you know, you want to make sure that Ty Conti marries like the greatest human being who ever lived, that they have great children and they live a great life and she's happy. And it's like for Ty Conti, that's what when I see here, that's the first thing that comes to my mind, man. It's like, man, you know what? She She better find somebody who's going to like treat her like gold. You know what I mean? A really good guy, you know, very smart, very ambitious, great 
guy who's making good money and they can live in a nice place and raise kids who can go to good schools and live in good neighborhoods and she can do everything that she wants to do as she get old as she gets older and life becomes you know more of a, a mature age and all those type of things because just as far as just like you know the persona she gives off is just absolutely glorious man wonderful and she's absolutely beautiful ty conti my, one of my favorite female uh, one of my favorite female wrestlers in the business, right up there with uh, Charlotte Flair, right up there with Naomi, right up there with Alexa Bliss. Once they change their character back to, uh, so they can get back to her beautiful self. I mean, Ty Conti is uh, is right up there. So right now she's uh, in tag team action, but uh, yeah, her beautifulness and her wonderfulness is keeping me going as I talk about what's happening in the world of sports. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about Giannis and the legacy that he has and all these other things. NBA Finals recap from Game 6, as I mentioned before. Talked about it in the uh, first part of the uh, podcast, first segment of the podcast. Measurement of how the series and games would go, as I mentioned, came down between the big three of the Phoenix Suns and the big three of the Milwaukee Bucks. And also, which role player, which other from the other team, what make a positive contribution? And Milwaukee's big three of Giannis, Middleton, and Holiday outplayed the big three of Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and DeAndre Ayton. Just that simple, just that easy. And Bobby Portis came in and uh, was awesome. He seemed like he was the one guy that came in and wasn't too overtaken by the moment. At the beginning of the game, it just seemed like the magnitude of the game might have been a little bit too much for the majority of those players out there. But uh, Bobby Portis came in, was like, no, nah, I'm cool. I'm ready to rip roar and ready to go. And uh, he was great. He did well. He was the, uh, Giannis was clearly the MVP. But, uh, you know, Bobby Portis was the guy to uh, where it was, uh, he was needed. And he was great. He was great in that game. So the Milwaukee Bucks are your NBA champions. Now the questions have to turn to the Phoenix Suns moving forward because I talked about the Milwaukee Bucks in the first thing moving forward their legacy the impact of what their championship meant I mentioned before really this is this is a series this NBA finals was a series of basically giving hope to teams who have been downtrodden giving hope to teams who aren't major markets giving hope to teams who are quote-unquote free agent destinations I mean, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Phoenix Suns, more of the Milwaukee Bucks than the Phoenix Suns, but, you know, this is a situation where, look, as I mentioned, if you're the my Washington Wizards, if you're the Indiana Pacers, if you're the Sacramento Kings, if you're the Orlando Magic, if you're the Minnesota Timberwolves, there's hope. There's hope. And that's good for the league. There's hope that if you have smart person, if you have smart people at the top making decisions about how good your basketball team is going to be in terms of personnel, in terms of direction, in terms of hiring a good coach, in terms of a solid organization. You, you can be a Milwaukee Bucks franchise. You can be a Phoenix Suns. You can do what the Phoenix Suns did. I mentioned before, even more than the Milwaukee Bucks, what the Phoenix Suns did was even more remarkable. Because the difference in this series between Milwaukee and Phoenix was the experience of the playoff journeys and the battles and the contests and the competition that the Milwaukee Bucks went through, the adversity of the Milwaukee Bucks, what they went through, the trials and tribulations, the doubts, the the the, the, the angst, the negativity, the 
backlash from losing, the failed expectations, the rumors, the innuendos, the negative chi that was coming from other folks, all of that stuff proved to strengthen the Milwaukee Bucks even more, proved to strengthen the resolve of the key players on that team, the foundational players on that team, for them to move forward. Now, Drew Holiday was an acquisition from the New Orleans Pelicans, so he didn't go through the same strife and ups and downs and wins and losses and battles that Giannis and Chris Middleton did. But he brought that hunger, he brought that desire, he brought that chemistry, he brought that professionalism, he brought that maturity to the squad, which blended in. And it was a situation where, look, Batman was already on board with Giannis. You already had Robin with Chris Middleton. And those guys were able and willing and receptive to having Drew Colliday come in be himself while being part of the team chemistry, what it's all about, the direction that they're going, being on the same page, all those cliches. And it strengthened them even more to win this championship. With Eric Bledsoe, Milwaukee isn't winning this championship. Sorry. And there were times where many people thought, at least from an offensive standpoint, that you really couldn't tell the difference as far as shooting-wise between Drew Holiday and Eric Bledsoe. But his impact was made in so many other places that, yeah, Eric Bledsoe might have gone through the battles and lost that Giannis and Middleton did. And the contract and the money that he was making might have said to you that, well, he's part of the core foundation of that team. But there was a ceiling to the impact and the positivity and the contribution that Eric Bledsoe could give to the team. And for the regular season, he was fine. With the playoff hit, he was done. So the Bucks needed to get better. They brought in Drew Holiday, and as I mentioned before, he was mature and receptive enough to blend in to what the core values of Giannis and Middleton and Brooke Lopez and Budenholzer and that organization was all about, and for them to win that championship. If you take a look at talent alone, I mean, the, the Bucks and the Suns weren't that much different. But everything I just mentioned about the Milwaukee Bucks losing to the Toronto Raptors, losing to the Miami Heat, being having the best record in the regular season and failing to meet expectations, having uh, questions about your coach, questions about whether your superstar, whether your megastar, whether your two-time MVP is going to remain with the Milwaukee Bucks, is going to remain with your franchise. What's going to be happening if the team loses, and what does that mean if you don't win a championship? If you don't make it to the championship round, what does that mean? The pressure that the Milwaukee Bucks were under to live up to expectations this year, the moves that were being made by the front office, what does this mean for those in the front office? What would that mean for the GM of the team if the Milwaukee Bucks didn't reach the promised land or make it and win the NBA championship? What would have that, what impact would that have faltered upon the Milwaukee Bucks. That's what the Bucks were facing this season and coming into the playoffs and falling down 2-0 against the Brooklyn Nets, coming back and winning, recovering after a heartbreaking loss in Game 5, barely by inches being able to win a game, a deciding game on the road in overtime to move, losing Game 1, having your superstar injure his knee and miss two of the games in the series, and the possibility at the time that it happened that, oh my goodness gracious, this looks serious, and this looks something to where we're going to be going without Giannis for a long time. All of these things, all of these trials and tribulations just continue to strengthen 
the team to where you're taking a look at what's the difference between the Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks when the finals came to about? It was that. It wasn't anything in terms of the Milwaukee Bucks weren't a quote-unquote better team in terms of talent or anything like that is concerned. That was the uh, that was the difference. So for the Phoenix Suns, they, they can take this either one or two ways. They can use what happened to them in the NBA Finals and strengthen them even more, even more to the fact that it doesn't guarantee that the Suns are going to be winning a championship because... You know, the, the Denver Nuggets right now are going through their trials and tribulations. The Utah Jazz are going through their trials and tribulations. The Los Angeles Clippers are going through their trials and tribulations. The teams that have been relatively new in terms of uh, uh, their journey to where they, where they want to be. So the Phoenix Suns are not the only team that are going through these things right now that are that are learning, that are growing, that are improving, that are that are strengthening their team right now. There's multitude of teams in the Western Conference of, of young guys, of young players, of, of players, of, of programs that are just now formulating into franchises that can win championships. So how are the Suns going to benefit from this more than, say, the Utah Jazz who won 60 games or won a, you know, a boatload of games in the regular season but was but were dismissed unceremoniously by the Los Angeles Clippers. What does it mean for, when you're speaking about the Phoenix Suns making the NBA Finals, what impact does that have? How much does it strengthen them making the NBA Finals more than, say, the Denver Nuggets who faltered after losing Jamal Murray to an ACL injury and coming up short and getting swept by the uh, Phoenix Suns. What, what does that mean for them compared to the Phoenix Suns making it to the NBA Finals? These are all the things that are going to be coming into play right now. So it doesn't just affect one team, but it affects the multitude of teams in the Western Conference moving forward. So how much more of an improvement can the Phoenix Suns make over the other contenders in the NBA in the Western Conference by making it to the NBA Finals as opposed to losing in the first round or being besieged by injuries, which is a setback or, you know, a situation where, you know, all these other teams are facing. We're going to see. We're going to see. Was this the best chance? Was this the only chance for the Suns to win an NBA championship with the way the team and coaches are constructed right now? They deserve to be in the NBA Finals. Let, I, I'm Rob Parker, I'm sorry. The Phoenix Suns deserve to be in the NBA Finals. But did it acquire some teams having bad luck for them to get there? Yes, absolutely. Phoenix, when you speak at the competition, was relatively healthy the entire postseason compared to the teams that they played in the playoffs. Yes, I understand that the Lakers were up 2-1, winning Game 3, 93-78 on, at home, uh, you know, at, uh, you know, at, on their home court in the first round when Anthony Davis was re-injured. And that was their opening for Phoenix to win three games in a row. Last time I checked, LeBron James was playing. Oh, yeah, but I forgot LeBron James had a bum ankle or he was still um, trying to get healthy from a high ankle sprain, which caused him to miss um, a multitude of games. I understand all that. But, but yet and still, the Phoenix Suns still did what they had to do. And Chris Paul, I remember, still had a sore shoulder uh, during that time also. Then they get Denver. Yeah, they swept Denver. And Denver was playing without Jamal Murray. And Michael Porter Jr. had a bad back. And Will Barton was just coming back to uh, rust to uh, get some of the rust off. So I understand all that. Denver was not the team that many people thought 
they were going to have when they um, went into the playoffs. And yeah, I understand that the uh, Phoenix Suns, they beat the Clippers in six games and L.A. was playing without Kawhi Leonard and basically, you know, played a team in L.A. that was relying on Reggie Jackson at the end of the game, at the end of the series, was playing the Marcus Cousins meaningful minutes. So I, I understand all of those things. I understand all those things without question. You know what? You can make an argument. If we're speaking about every team being 100% that, yes, they don't get out of the first round against the Los Angeles Lakers. Yes, you can make the argument that if the Nuggets had Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. was healthy, that the Nuggets would have beaten the Phoenix Suns. Yes, you can make the argument that if Kawhi would have played, especially at the level that he was playing against the uh, Dallas Mavericks, that if that Kawhi Leonard shows up, playing against the Phoenix Suns, that the Suns don't make it to the NBA Finals. You can make an argument for all those things, but guess what? If I was 100 pounds lighter and much better looking, you know, maybe I could go ahead and maybe 20, 25 pounds lighter and I could know how to do a moonsault and I know how to do backflips and I could know how to wrestle. Maybe I could go to AEW and go up to Ty Conti and say, hello, and something great would happen. Yes, all of those things could happen, but we're living in the real world and none of those things did happen. Injuries happen in the NBA. So, sorry, Anthony Davis has had a history of having injuries. It happened at the wrong time again, and it hurt the Los Angeles Lakers. Bad moves, bad made, bad trades, bad acquisitions in the offseason by the Lakers, getting Marcus Saul, signing Dennis Schroeder, all of those things didn't work. So it was a matter of LeBron and AD had to stay healthy, had to be relatively healthy once the playoffs start. They weren't. They didn't have a plan B that would work. Phoenix took advantage of it. They won. As I mentioned before, injuries happen. It sucks. With Denver. Clippers, injuries ha happen. It sucks. So there we go. So Phoenix made it to the NBA Finals. Have nothing to be ashamed of. Because last time I checked, Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton didn't get themselves injured. Last time I checked, Chris Paul, playing with multitude of injuries, was able to go ahead and play some great basketball for most of the uh, playoffs. So I don't want to hear this nonsense about, well, you know, the only reason the only reason why the Phoenix Suns made it to the NBA Finals was because of the injuries that happened. Last time I checked, the Phoenix Suns were the number two seed in the uh, Western Conference. So this wasn't a number seven seed. This wasn't a number eight seed. Phoenix won a 50-something games last uh, this, this past regular season, and it wasn't because every time they played one of the better teams, someone was injured. So their run to the playoffs, their run to the finals was legit, despite the shortcomings with the other teams because of injuries, the shortcomings of the teams that they played because of their injuries. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host. Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. So the question moving forward, can Booker... DeAndre Ayton be the foundation of a team that consistently competes for a championship. Monty Williams with the coach being the coach. Booker and Ayton, they have a great opportunity to be an elite one-two punch in the league right now because they, they would fulfill two needs of necessity. Number one, a front court player in Ayton who can not only score from the low post, but even more importantly than that, be able to defend on the pick and roll. To be able to defend guards and forwards on the pick and roll. Now, he's not going to shut them down, but we saw the importance of Tristan Thompson when he was playing with the Cleveland Cavaliers, how important it is to have a big be able to somewhat contain the smaller guards on, on pick and rolls. And on the other end of the spectrum, we saw how devastating it was 
when you didn't have a big man who could be able to um, be able to contain uh, guard play on pick and rolls. See the Utah Jazz. So Aiton is that guy. Aiton is that guy that can not only provide you with ultimately anywhere between 18 to 21, 22 points a game in his fifth or sixth year in the league, but also a guy who can average anywhere between 11, 13, 14 rebounds a game. So if you're getting a guy who's averaging about 21 points and 13 rebounds a game, shooting somewhere in the 50 to 55 percentile range, you're talking about a guy who then is going to be right up there with the Embiid's, going to be right up there with the uh, Nikola Jokic's as one of the best big men in the NBA. And as I mentioned before, his defensive prowess in terms of coming out on pick and roll switches to be able to guard guards and forwards who are looking to score is invaluable. That's even more valuable than him scoring anywhere between 18 to 22 a game for the next five, six, seven years. So at just 23 years old, Aiton could be a perennial top five center for the next eight to 10 years or top five center, top three center for the next eight to 10 years and could be that guy who could be second team all NBA for the next eight to 10 years. So right there, you, you've got something that you can work with with Aiton, who shot 63% during the regular season, 71% in the postseason, and also averaged a double-double in points and rebounds and did and played great defense on Nikola Jokic and Anthony Davis. Devin Booker had a great, had a, you know, showed um, greatness in terms of him being a guy that you can build a championship team around. He's going to be only 24 years old. He made significant strides in being a player that can win a championship at the number one option. Now, this is a guy who has increased, has improved his game, and it looks like he has the maturity, looked like he has the mentality, the wants and desires to go ahead and to be great. So this is not going to be a situation where Devin Booker is going to rest on his laurels. I don't think Devin Booker is going to be a guy who's going to rest on his laurels and uh, think that he's already made it. I think Devin Booker is a worker. Everything, all the reports show that Devin Booker is a guy who wants to be great, who's willing to put in the work. And what it showed this season, both with Aiton and Chris Paul, the ability to, you know, be mature enough and be educational enough in their thinking to say, I've got Chris Paul on my team. i got one of the best point guards and one of the best players of his generation on my team. And he's still a guy that's valuable. Is still a still a guy who's making an impact. You, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to listen to this guy. I'm going to go ahead and let him be the leader of the team. I'm going to go ahead and be the guy that's going to follow the Pied Piper. I'm going to be that guy. I'm not going to be like James Harden. It's going to be my way. This is my team. You just got here and all those type of things. What have you done for me lately? You haven't won a championship. You haven't done this. I'm not going to bristle. When he yells and screams, Chris Paul is not a screamer, but I'm not going to bristle when Chris Paul gets in my face and, you know, this, that, and the other. Now, for Aiton, it took a little bit of time for him to get used to it, but eventually he came around. But near the end, you saw the chemistry, you saw the harmony, you saw how everything was put together with those guys, and it can only help them in terms of the Phoenix Suns going forward, having, regardless of what happens with Chris Paul, and I'll get to Chris Paul in a second, regardless if Chris Paul comes back, plays with the Suns, or he goes with the Knicks, or he goes with the Lakers, or he goes somewhere else to cash to uh, to to um, to uh, get that payday, 
I think the season that Chris Paul, the impact that he had on the careers of DeAndre Ayton and Devin Booker are invaluable. Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. You take a look at the elite duos and coaches in the Western Conference. When I'm speaking about Booker, Ayton, Monty Williams, can that threesome as far as that, that dynamic of player, coach, duo, coach, Batman, Robin, Alfred, coach, whatever, are they going to be good enough to sustain the success that they had this year in Phoenix? When you take a look at LeBron and Anthony Davis and Frank Vogel in L.A., Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Quinn Snyder, Utah, Kawhi Leonard, even though he has a torn ACL, Paul George and Tyron Lue in, with the Clippers. Luca Porzingis for now. I don't know what they're going to be doing with Porzingis, but Luca, you know, slot in another really good player, and now Jason Kidd, not Rick Carlisle in Dallas. Nikola Jokic, Jabal Murray, Michael Porter Jr. possibly because of Murray's injury with the ACL. Michael Malone in Denver. Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, Steve Kerr, Golden State. John Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr., Taylor Jenkins in Memphis. Where does Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, and Monty Williams fall in that group? When you take a look at all of those duos and coaches that I just mentioned. What's going to happen with Damian Lillard and Bradley Beal with the trade rumors? What, what happens now if, for instance, the Portland Trailblazers can somehow acquire Ben Simmons? Where would you put a Ben Simmons, Damian Lillard, Chauncey Billups combo in all of this let's say for instance that the golden state warriors acquire bradley beal from the Wiz. where do you put the golden state warriors and what chances do you give the phoenix suns with the combo of booker and ayton with the coaching acumen of monty williams where would you put the phoenix suns after the acquisition if 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 the golden state warriors acquire bradley beal other Phoenix Suns, Mikhail Bridges, Cam Johnson, they, they must be kept. They are part of that foundation. Bridges should receive a nice contract extension. Johnson is an excellent role player, shooter off the bench, so he can provide that instant scoring. Six foot seven, played well in the playoffs, even showed a little bounce, dunking over P.J. Tucker, showed a little dribble drive game during the finals also. So this is a guy who can continue to improve. They need more front court depth in the front court. Dario Sarge with their only front court player of consequence last season and his torn ACL in the finals you know, it, it wouldn't didn't prove to be the devastating blow but it definitely didn't help because Aiton was not a guy who was going to be able to go 40 42 45 minutes a game and play effective and if he got in trouble foul trouble when he got in foul trouble we saw the diminishment of the Phoenix Suns in terms of their ability to, to compete against Milwaukee, especially when you're speaking about the offensive and defensive glass. So they're going to need to find a, a backup power forward center who can play about 12 to 15 minutes a game as DeAndre Ayton continues to grow into his body, continues to elevate his, his physical to where possibly in his fifth or sixth or seventh year, he'll be averaging a good 38 to 42 minutes a game once the playoff starts. And you won't need that valuable backup to play 12 to 15 minutes a game at the power forward position. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. What are we going to do about Chris Paul, man? What the legacy of Chris Paul? Ranks fifth in the league, all-time in assists, 
over 10,000, made 11 NBA All-Star teams, 10 All-NBA teams, 9 NBA All-Defensive teams. Where are we going? The man is 36 years old, going to be 37. Slowed down a little bit. The effect of Drew Holiday finally took a toll on him. I thought he was playing, he was playing well. I'm not going to say this is James Harden where, you know, game three he was awesome and then game four he fell off a cliff. But just in terms of after game, what was it, game number two, game number one, somewhere around there, you saw the diminishment in terms of impact that Chris Paul had and you saw how much stronger Drew Holiday was getting and how much more impactful Drew Holiday was getting. Even though he was inconsistent from a shooting standpoint, the effectiveness that he had in guarding Chris Paul throughout the series in terms of starting to wear him down finally took a toll on Paul, even though I think in, in game six, he was good. He only had one bad game in the finals, but for the most part, he was good to very good. But a lot of the effectiveness was negative of what he could have been because of the pressure that Drew Holiday was putting on him. So moving forward, Chris Paul, as I mentioned before, 36, going to be 37 years old. Was this not only Chris Paul's best chance to win a championship, was this Chris Paul's best chance to be really the effective difference maker for a team that can win a championship. He's already one of the best point guards of all time, regardless of what happens moving forward. He's right up there with Magic, Isaiah, Oscar Robertson, John Stockton, Jason Kidd, Calvin Murphy, Walt Frazier, Steve Nash, Tiny Archibald from Georgetown University, the great Allen Iverson, Gary Payton, Tony Parker, Russell Westbrook. You want to go back even farther, Bob Cousy. He's, he's right there. He's right there, but when you think about it, and you think about especially the size of Chris Paul, when you're speaking about a guy who's listed as 6'1", so he's probably closer to 5'11", 5'10 than he is 6 feet, or 6 feet 1 is listed, is listed height. Great point guards of that stature, especially the way they play the game. He's not an Allen Iverson type. He's not a new age point guard. He's not a John Moran type. He's not even really an Isaiah Thomas type. Chris Paul... Very rarely, he's not going to be someone who's going to go out, quote-unquote, and get his. You know, his value to the team, his value, his greatness, the reason why he's one of the best point guards he's ever played the game is because of his intelligence, because of his acumen to play the classic point guard in terms of getting others involved, setting the tempo for the game, um, dictating the tempo of the game, dictating what happens, what goes down, and then his defensive play also throughout the years. That what makes Chris Paul great. It's not his ability to score 40 points. It's not his ability to uh, average 30 or in the high 20s a game. It's, it's not that at all. It's the ability to make his, the other players on his team all-stars, to make the other players on his team great, while also, again, playing great defense. So if you take a look at Chris Paul and the type of style that he has in terms of being that classic point guard, the size and everything like that, there's not too many guards of that stature. There are not too many guards throughout the history of the NF of the NBA who had that type of playing style, who were great, that had major, you know, that that that, that won multiple championships. Bob Cousy, who was the first great point guard in the league, he didn't have any championships until Bill Russell showed up. Magic won five, but he was a freak of nature in terms of being a 6'9 point guard. He won five championships, two NBA final uh, MVPs. A guy who's going to go down as one of the greatest 
basketball players who's ever lived. Tony Parker, the start of the new age of point guards that weren't classic, that also looked to score just as much as they looked to dish off to others and dictate tempo and to- those type of things. He won four championships, won an MVP in the finals and one where the Spurs swept the San Antonio Spurs. But the, you know, the, the main guy on that team was Tim Duncan. Isaiah won two championships. Well, Frazier won two championships. But for the most part, you know, Tiny Archibald won a championship late in his career with the Boston Celtics. But, you know, he let Larry Bird carry him to that finish line. And Gary Payton, he let uh, Dwayne Wade and Shaquille O'Neal carry him to that finish line in terms of winning championships late in their career as important role players. Westbrook, Steve Nash, Allen Iverson, Calvin Murphy, they never won an NBA championship. Made it to an NBA Finals, but they never won an NBA championship. So in terms of when you're grading, when you're debating, when you're discussing who is the greatest point guard, Chris Paul's legacy, for those who want to ding him about, you know, not winning a championship, um, there's a lot of great point guards who's played, whose style and being being the main guy on the team didn't equate to them winning championships. So, look, Chris Paul's resume is, I don't know if you want to call it uneven. Call it whatever you want to. He's had five first-round playoff exits. First of all, he's made it there a couple of times, so you got to give the man credit for that. But he's had five first-round playoff exits. He's failed to advance past the second round four times. He fell short in the Western Conference Finals two other times. Um, and you're speaking about, you know, blown leads. I hate to say this, but no... I don't think there's any been a, I don't think there's been a player in NBA history, any great player in NBA history who's had the misfortune of blowing leads in the playoffs like Chris Paul when you're speaking about in 2008 blowing a 2-0 series lead against the San Antonio Spurs, 2013 against the Memphis Grizzlies with the LA Clippers, the Chris Paul led Clippers blew a 2-0 series lead, 3-1 against the Houston Rockets uh, uh, versus Houston in 2015. They blew that uh, series up 2-0 versus Portland in 2016. Now, he broke his hand, but the Clippers didn't go ahead and win that series. And, of course, being up 3-2 against the Golden State Warriors in 2018, his hamstring prevented him from uh, being part of a team that could have made it to the NBA championship and was unable to close out games 6-7 and seven against the Warriors during that series. So then you add in the 2-0 uh, 2-0 lead that they had against the Milwaukee Bucks this year in the NBA Finals and lost. So, you know, it's a situation where, man, it's like he's the first player to ever blow four 2-0 series leads in the best of seven series. So that's going to be part of Chris Paul's legacy. But you can't, you can't uh, debate the fact that he's not one of the best point guards in NBA history. And over, overall, how much... Now, do we value NBA point guards? Well, we're speaking about the greatest players who've ever played. Oscar Robertson was a basketball guard. He was a big point guard for the most part. But when we're speaking about small men and we, you know, put them in the annals of who's the greatest players in NBA history, we, we always start off first with the big men, right? Well, we always talk about who's the greatest basketball player of all time. We go with Jordan, 6'6", shooting guard. We go with Magic, 6'9", point guard. We go with Larry Bird, 6'9", small forward. And then we go with, uh, and, and also equated into that group is seven feet behemoth, Wilt Chamberlain, six foot ten, six foot eleven defensive guru from the center position, Bill Russell. 
the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, seven feet two. So we a lot of these times when we speak about the greatest players in NBA history, how many guys do we have to go to before we reach a guy who's six three, six two, six one? Well, how far do we have to go? Because a lot of times we start with centers, then we move to shooting guards, then we move to power forwards, then we move to small forwards, and then we move to the point guards. When you're speaking about the totality of players who have played, when we start breaking it down to, okay, where did this guy fit? How did this guy fit? Who did this guy fit? We always will add in the Tim Duncans. We'll always add in the uh, uh, LeBron James. We'll always add in the bigger players, especially for their position, before we start talking about an Allen Iverson, before we start speaking about an Isaiah Thomas, before we start speaking about a John Stockton, before we start speaking about a Chris Paul, especially when we're speaking about a guy in Chris Paul who, as I mentioned before, because of his style of play, from a statistical standpoint, there's, there's no really one stat except for the possibility of, of assists that really jump out at you. you know. And we're so point-driven in terms of you know, when we speak about greatest players of all time, we always mention how many points did they score? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, one of the greatest players of all time. Why? Because of the number of points he scores. Carl Malone, the number of points he scored. Michael Jordan, the number of points that he scored. Wilt Chamberlain, the number of points he scored. The only reason why we don't say that about Bill Russell is because the man won 11 championships in 13 seasons. We speak about Magic Johnson, 6'9 point guard, and not only at that time, it still is being a point guard of that size. Um, winning five championships. Larry Bird, a 6'9 small forward who could shoot like he does, never came around before like that with the level of skill that he had when he entered the league in 1979-1980 season. Three championships, two MVPs. So, you know, with Isaiah and Chris Paul and John Stockton and the others, it's hard to equate, okay, as far as the all-time great players are concerned, where do we put these guys? So, for me, win or lose, moving forward, several sources believe that Paul's going to opt out and sign a new contract in a three-year, $100 million range. That's what he's looking for. This is a situation where he's going to sign it with, again, Phoenix. Is he going to look to get that money somewhere else? He ain't going to get it from the L.A. Lakers. So, all this talk about, you know, the Lakers are interested in Chris Paul, that's great. But if Chris Paul is looking to sign with the Lakers and play with his buddy LeBron James, he's going to have to take a pay cut. Now, how much does he value getting an NBA championship in terms of how much money he's going to be making? The guy makes money. The guy makes a lot of money. But I'm not Chris Paul, so I'm not going to speak on what he should and shouldn't do. He should do what's best for him and best for his family. If he feels that means making as much money as possible, go for it. If it means that uh, he's going to take a pay cut and get that championship, go for it. So I'm not going to blame him either way. It's none of my business in terms of what his wants and needs are as a basketball player, an NBA basketball player and such. So Chris Paul, legacy set. The Phoenix Suns, will the Suns be, will the Sun be setting on their championship aspirations moving forward in the years 2022, 23, 24, 25, and 26? Only time will tell, but with the combination of DeAndre Ayton, Devin Booker, the coaching of Monty Williams, they can continue to go in the direction that I think they can. I think, she in the bad pun, the sun will be bright in Phoenix.
Wendell's World in Sports, I'm your host, Wendell Wallace, so glad that you could be with us. I'm approaching the midnight hour as I'm recording this on a Monday night. I'm going to wait till the midnight hour. That's when my podcasting comes tumbling down. I want to wait till the midnight hour when there's no one else around. I want to take you, girl, and hold you and do all the things I told you in the midnight hour. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. The great Wilson Pickett. Um, NBA moving forward to the offseason. <laughs> and I tell you, Milwaukee didn't even have a chance to have the championship parade before the Los Angeles Lakers started making possible headlines, right? I mean, man, could y'all give the Milwaukee Bucks just a few moments of hip hip hooray, put the spotlight on me, it's all about me for a second? Lakers are thinking about acquiring Russell Westbrook in a trade for Kyle Kuzma, Dennis Schroeder, and Taylor Horton Tucker. Now, it would have to be a sign-in trade because Schroeder is a free agent. But for my Washington Wizards to sit up there and think about uh, getting Kyle Kuzma, Dennis Schroeder, and Taylor Horton Tucker, I, I don't know exactly what that does. In a minute, I'm going to talk about the Bradley Beal deal because Bradley Beal is now coming to his senses and is looking around saying, why, why do I want to stay with this franchise now? What, 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 as I'm reaching 27, 28 years old, prime of my career, I, maybe with the U.S. Olympic team before he left that he was talking to Damian Lillard, maybe he saw a Damian Lillard situation and like, am I going to be the Damian Lillard of the Eastern Conference? That guy who's like an all elite NBA type player who's be stuck in mediocrity because of the franchise that I'm with. Did these guys, I mean, did he kind of take a look at that and was like, yeah, maybe I should start thinking about possibly getting the hell out of here. As much as I love Washington, D.C., no doubt. As much as I love the area, no doubt. But it's just like, I, 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 I'm trying to win a championship here. I want to win a championship here. I remember when the Wizards made the deal for Russell Westbrook with the intentions, main intentions of, hey, look, we're trying to show Bradley Beal that we care, that we're interested in winning, so we go ahead and we get Russell Westbrook and we'll make the playoffs. Well, what the hell does that mean? We'll make the playoffs. Well, so what? We make the seed. We make the playoffs as an eighth seed. We get bounced rather easily by the Philadelphia 76ers. What exactly does that mean? I I, I, I don't get that. So that's what you're showing Bradley Beal? Hey, we made the first round of the playoffs. That's what you're showing the fan base? Hey, we made the playoffs. Well, big fucking deal. As a fan of the Washington Wizards, I'm not interested in them making the playoffs. I want them to win a championship. What do I give a fuck if they're going to, hey, let's sacrifice, um, you know, X, Y, and Z to go so we can lose in the first round in the playoffs so we can make it at the eighth seed. Now, look, they traded John Wall, which was a great deal because Russell Westbrook, John Wall, their contracts are just about the same. And in a situation like this, it makes the trade more amenable if, a team like the Lakers, desperate enough to go after Russell Westbrook, no one was going to be interested in John Wall, especially, again, after another injury play, unfulfilling, unsuccessful year for not only him as a player, but also for the team that he played on. So as far as trade value is concerned, even the trade in itself makes sense if that was going to be the main reason why to acquire Russell Westbrook more than just trying to make the playoffs. The fact that, again, he could showcase his wares, Westbrook was a better player than John Wall, and possibly maybe we could find someone dumb enough, desperate enough to go ahead and think that they can uh, go ahead and get Russell Westbrook and take the remaining years and money off of uh, what the Washington Wizards were going to have to uh, pay him. 
But uh, Kyle Kuzma, Dennis Schroeder, and Taylor Horton Tucker. Kyle Kuzma. I remember Kyle Kuzma making a uh, comment that uh, he was just as good as Jason Tatum. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Come on, man. Why? Because you play 20, because you average close to 20 points a game on a team that won 21 games? I mean, what the hell does that mean? He's as good as Jason Tatum. Get the hell out of here. If the Lakers want to try to get Russell Westbrook, fine. They want to try to get Cal Lowry, fine. They want to try to get Chris Paul, fine. They want to try to find a way to get DeMar DeRozan, fine. These are all the names that are being floated around right now. My, my question is, how in the hell are you going to do it? Because what real, realistically, what can the Lakers do to make significant improvements to their team while keeping Anthony Davis and LeBron James? Because James and Davis are going to be making $76.5 billion just between the two of them. And the projected salary cap is going to be $112 million. So you, you tell me, Chris Paul is going to be opting out of a contract that's going to be paying him $44 million. You, you tell me, where in the hell are the Lakers going to get that money or what the hell are they going to do to free up enough money to go ahead and to uh, make that deal? So Chris Paul is going to opt out of a $44 million deal to take what? Half of what he can make to play with the Lakers? Now, his, his situation is, look, I'm going to opt out of this deal because I've only got two years left on this deal that's going to pay me over $40 million each year. I want another year extended onto that, so I'll go ahead and I'll take myself a three-year 90-something million, $100 million deal because I'll get that extra 30 mil, mil. I'll get that extra money on the final year of my deal. Chris Paul at the age of 39, 40, making close to 35, 30-something million dollars. I mean, that's 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 iffy. That's something. Didn't we, didn't we already go through that with Houston? Remember when the Rockets acquired Chris Paul and they signed him to a ridiculous amount of money. And it's like, you guys know, like, in four years, when Chris Paul is going to be 36 years old, that you're going to be paying him 40-something million dollars, right? So it was like, so you know your window with James Harden and such to win a championship is like right now because Chris Paul at that age is not going to be the same player that he is right now. And if you're looking to trade for someone like that who's going to be making that amount of money, it's going to be very difficult. Well, luckily... Oklahoma City, and then the Phoenix Suns uh, made the deal. And luckily for them that Chris Paul, I don't know, reemerged in terms of being one of the better point guards in the league the last couple of years. But Father Time is undefeated. It's exactly where are we going with this moving forward. At the age of 39, how good, how effective, how impactful can Chris Paul be? Especially if you're speaking about, let's just say, for instance, he does take that pay cut and he goes with the Lakers. How much is a 39-year-old Chris Paul, a 37-year-old LeBron James, and an often injured then 30, 31-year-old Anthony Davis, how good is that going to be when those guys are your three main players? Now, your argument is going to be as long as you've got LeBron James on your team, I mean, he can take, you know, chicken shit and turn it into chicken salad. Well, yeah, maybe the 25-year-old LeBron James, maybe the 31-year-old LeBron James, maybe even the 35-year-old LeBron James. But how much more, how many more, how many years left that LeBron James have? How much time did LeBron James have left to be able to elevate mediocre talent for them to be elite basketball franchises? How many more years, how many more times, how many more opportunities does LeBron James have in that situation? 
Because LeBron James, clearly, while being a top five player in his league before he got injured, even some people were saying that he was the MVP of the league until Solomon Hill fell on his ankle, which caused a high ankle sprain, which caused LeBron to miss 20-something games and really opened up the pathway for Nikola Jokic to uh, win that MVP. How much more time does LeBron James have as far as being that player? When do the Lakers have to come to the realization that they have to, quote-unquote, turn this team over to someone like an Anthony Davis? As I mentioned in podcast before, eventually with the great basketball players of all time, eventually it's going to happen. Will Chamberlain, the greatest scorer of his era, the greatest scorer in NBA history, maybe not statistically, but when you take a look at the offensive prowess that Wilt Chamberlain had, scoring 50 points a game one season, then coming back and averaging 45 points a game the next, leading the NBA in scoring the first seven years of his uh, NBA career, far and away was the most dominant offensive threat in the um, annals of, in, of NBA history for the longest of times. I mean, there was a situation where he finally said, look, man, I can't go ahead and go out there and try to score 30, 40, 50 points a game every single night. I'm going to have to go ahead and retool the way that I play to maximize my opportunities to help my team, to have my team win championships and keep me relevant. So by the time that he was in his mid-30s, and of course being in your low to mid-30s in the year 1970, 71, and 72 was a lot different than being in your mid-30s now in 2021, 22, and 23 and such. I know it's a big difference, but by the end of his career, Wilt Chamberlain was averaging 14, 15 points a game and relying on Jerry West and Happy Harrison and Jim uh, Clemens and such to uh, win him championships. I mean, he was the part, not the main part, as far as scoring-wise is concerned, as far as Wilt Chamberlain being part of the greatest basketball team, one of the greatest basketball teams for a season in 1966-67. He only averaged, and I say only, he only averaged 24 points along with 24 rebounds and 7 assists, but he had Chet Walker, he had Hal Greer, he had uh, Lucas Jackson, he had others, Matty Gukas, Billy, Billy Cunningham, who could take that pressure off of him. So, quote-unquote, Wilt Chamberlain gave up a lot of him being the man on the team to others so he could go ahead and win himself a championship and continue that trend all the way up to the end of his career. It happens with the greatest players of all time. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had to do that. After 1985-86, he had to hand the basketball franchise, they had to hand the reins over to Magic Johnson. He was going to be the guy that was going to be the main person as far as scoring and others is concerned. David Robinson had to do that when Tim Duncan came into town. They wanted to preserve his career and have multiple chances to win championships to put himself in position to win championships. Dwayne Wade did that when LeBron James came over from Cleveland and midway through the second season with them, Dwayne told LeBron, hey man, this is your team. Go ahead and take it over. Tim Duncan had to do that with Tony Parker when the Suns were, or excuse me, when the Spurs were swept by the Suns and Goran Dragic went nuts and eliminated the uh, Spurs in four games and Popovich had to make the decision, look, we can't run our entire offense through Tim Duncan anymore. We can't have that slow down, wait till Tim Duncan goes into the post and we run everything through him type of offense anymore. He switched to a more wide open, free flowing, three point shooting game, which enabled San Antonio to win a couple of more championships. So when is the time going to come for LeBron James to go ahead and say, hey, look, man, what I've been doing for the past 16, 17 years of my life, can't do that anymore. 16, 17 years of my NBA career, can't do that anymore. I have to go ahead and turn this over to Anthony Davis. Is Anthony Davis ready to take that 
responsibility and it's the acquisition of Russell Westbrook, Chris Paul, DeMar DeRozan, Kyle Lowry, one of those guys, is that going to be enough to enable the Lakers to be one of the favorites to not just compete for an NBA championship, but also win an NBA championship? So we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I think for the Lakers moving forward, and look, the West is wide open. I mean, as I mentioned before, with uh, unless something happens with the Warriors and Bradley Beal, there is uh, really, for the first time in a long time, the West is is open for multiple teams to win to win championships. So you know, well, I I don't think that Russell Westbrook it'll be an interesting fit in terms of what do we do with Westbrook because he's going to need the ball to be effective. LeBron James is going to need the ball to be effective. We take a look at the Chris Paul, his acquisition. Chris Paul is going to need the ball to be effective. I mean, he can't, he's not going to be, you know, really of great help if he's going to be playing off the ball, being the shooter for LeBron James, being the ball handler and setting everybody up. Again, with LeBron reaching advanced age in his NBA career, the need for him to have the ball as much as he does, maybe that de- decreases. But are you going to all of a sudden now turn LeBron into a, a shooting guard? Are you going to have LeBron coming off double screens to shoot jumpers and create? Are you going to be having LeBron post up in the low post and isolate? I mean, what are we going to be doing? That's not as great as LeBron James is, as versatile as LeBron James is. That's not his game. His game isn't something to akin of a prototypical shooting guard. His, his, his greatness is when he has the ball in his hands and he's making decisions that will affect himself or his teammates. So with Russell Westbrook, Chris Paul, Kyle Lowry having that traditional point guard, what is that going to mean for LeBron James moving forward? And again, understand the thinking, understand the rationale in terms of we need to get LeBron James some help in terms of handling the basketball. But the thought process was, at least with Schroeder, Schroeder was a guy who could not only play the point guard position, but could also be a guy who could score the basketball, who could shoot, who could do some other things. He wasn't the greatest of point guards. He wasn't the greatest of shooting guards, but there was enough in there with him being a guard that he could supply the ability to help the team running the point when needed and then being the scoring guard when needed. That's not the case with Russell Westbrook Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry. Russell Westbrook is not going to be that guy who's going to be your prototypical shooting guard because he can't shoot, at least from the outside on a consistent basis. He's not that he's not that guy. Kyle Lowry is more of a point guard. I mean, you're going to have, what, 6'1"? Trying to play that role? So, I don't know. And you have to also think about it, and I'm thinking about it here on Wendell's World of Sports, the podcast with yours truly, Wendell Wallace, the Lakers still going to have to consider what to do about their own free agents and their own draft picks when dealing with the salary cap. As I mentioned before, LeBron and Anthony Davis are making $76.5 million. The cap is $112 million. What are they, what are they going to do with their overall pick, 22, uh, the 22nd overall pick in the draft? You could say they might be able to include that in the package to get Westbrook or whoever. But if they don't get Westbrook, what are they going to do with that 22nd overall pick? Then you have your own free agents, such as Schroeder, Alice Caruso, Taylor Horton Tucker, Andre Drummond, Markeith Morris, Wesley Matthews, Ben McLemore, Montrez Harold, who's probably going to uh, 
buy into a $9.7 million player option. So he's going to get into that. So who was going to go? Who was going to stay? Who was going to be needed? You resisted temptation to trade Taylor Horton Tucker at the end of at the uh, trade date trade trade deadline this season. Are you going to trade him at the end of the season? What are you going to do with Caruso? You're not going to bring Schroeder back, but if you can't get anybody else, what do you have left? What else are you going to do? You might have you might be forced to sign Schroeder to a short term deal, and Schroeder, who already turned down a four year deal worth somewhere around twenty million dollars per. He's looking for somewhere big. If this is going to be just a marriage that's just going to be out of a convenience and necessity, not out of love and need. So we're going to be taking a look at that. Andre Drummond, Marquise Morris, Wesley Matthews, Ben McLemore. They're nothing more than players to fill out the end of the bench who could be low salary type of guys, especially if you're speaking about Wesley Matthews and Ben McLemore, Marquise Morris and such. So, you know, I, I, I exactly don't know what you're going to do. Lowry said that he has interest in the Lakers, according to uh, Broderick Turner of the uh, L.A. Times. Okay. All right. How much? Is he going to take a pay cut? Is he going to take a haircut on how much he's going to be able to make in the open markets? And not only that, our teams like the Philadelphia 76ers, Dallas Mavericks, New Orleans Pelicans, and Miami Heat, who might have more money, who might be able to free up more money to get Lowry, are they going to be strong obstacles for the Lakers to possibly get the services of Kyle Lowry? We don't know. Mentioned DeMar DeRozan expressed interest in joining the Lakers during an interview with uh, Shannon Sharp on the Club Shay Shay show. The Club Shay Shay. Club Shay Shay. Uh, he's talking about doing some stuff, so we'll see. We'll see what's going on with the Lakers. I just don't know how they do. Ooh, hold on for a second. Oh, wow. I'm watching AEW Dark. Jay Cargill. About time she finally shows up and does something. The body that that woman has. Good Lord have mercy. Mm. To be young and attractive and sexy. Must be something. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us speaking about getting, getting my mind back to the NBA as the time is now 12.15 in the morning. Hello. Let me see. Bradley Beal requesting a trade before the NBA draft. Long maintained, has long maintained the confidence and desire to stay in Washington so long as he believes the Wizards were in the position to advance deep into the postseason. We know that's not going to happen. They say that he hasn't, Beal hasn't said, get me out of here, but it's like, well, you know, if that point ever did come around, I do have, uh, I do have some teams that I might catch my fancy. I don't have a quote unquote list of teams that I want to be traded to, but if the time does come where that happens, I mean, Boston, Golden State, Miami, Philadelphia. I'd be interested. I would be uh, open to listening. Now, Beal is reportedly upset with the team over a lack of input in his recent co- recent coaching search. According to Fred Cass of the Athletic, Beal's top choice was reportedly Sam Cassell, who was currently an assistant with the Philadelphia 76ers and previously spent time on the Wizards staff but never got a second interview. Sam was with the Wizards um, I think he was with um, Randy Whitman. Randy, uh, yeah, I think he was with him on that staff. But instead they hired Wes Unsell Jr. So, you know. Look, I, I think we're in a position to say, hey, everything from the early Grunfield era needs to be erased. 
needs to be taken down, needs to be destroyed, needs to be eradicated, whatever you want to say. We, we need to start from the beginning. We need to start fresh. We need to start new. You know how a coach comes in and within a couple of years he has players that were never a part of the team and all that type of stuff? That needs to be the thing with the uh, Washington Wizards in terms of the early in terms of the early Grunfeld era. Get everything everything that's been associated with Grunfeld out of there and start anew. We did with the coach. Uh, we're continuing with the players. I say, look, man, we need to start from ground zero. Trade Beal, trade him to Golden State, get that seventh, fourteenth, and James Wiseman, and then we move forward from there. Especially with a rookie coach and West Sunsell Jr. Hey, man, this team isn't ready to win. This team isn't ready to make some move. Let's start the rebuilding process right now. We've got our first-round draft pick. If we could go ahead and get a prospect like Wiseman and go ahead and get the 7th or 14th pick, then we might have something there. Because if you take a look in the cupboard for the Wizards, what do we got? Who are we building on right now? Who With Bradley Beal, who else are we going to build with around Bradley Beal? Denny Abia? Troy Brown Jr.? Davis Bertans, Rudy Hachimura. I mean, those aren't those aren't players that you're going to win championships with. So let's start again, rebuild, and get it going. But uh, yeah, Bradley Beal looking to move. Los Angeles Lakers making moves, and we got the draft coming up Thursday. Man, it's great to be a fan of the NBA. Wendell's World in Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. Final segment of the program. Final segment of the podcast. Talked a lot about what was going on in the world of sports. Talked about the NBA. Again, my next podcast with the start of training camp, the NFL training camps. I will be uh, speaking about the NFL. We'll be getting down with the NFL. We'll be talking about Aaron Rodgers. We'll be talking about... Deshaun Watson talking about anything that comes up in the world of sports. Also talking about the upcoming NBA draft, what the Detroit Pistons are going to do, what the Oklahoma City Thunder are going to do, the trades, the innuendos, uh, what's Portland going to do with Damian Lillard, what the Wizards are going to do with um, whether the Wizards are going to do with Bradley Beal. Talk a little bit about the Olympic basketball team losing to France. Also want to talk about the Olympics in general. Really haven't been watching too much of it, but uh, there's a pattern going on that I'm seeing within the Olympics that uh, I, I want to get into over in Tokyo, 16-hour, uh, excuse me, I'm tired, man, 16-hour time difference between the um, games and the uh, time out here on the Pacific Coast, so a lot of the times when something's happening, it's in the middle of the night, which I'm not watching, so... Anything that comes up, anything that's happening with the basketball team, the boxing, the gymnastics, the swimming, the softball, women's basketball, all those things, 
Anything interesting happens, I will definitely talk about it, give you my opinions on uh, what's going down. But I want to end the last segment of the podcast. First of all, I want to talk really quickly about uh, something because I wanted to do it the I wanted to do it the segment before, but I totally forgot. But I want to um, just say something really quickly. McCorm Maker is out of the NBA draft. He's not returning to Howard. Howard University, the former five-star recruit, announced on Tuesday evening that he will be withdrawing from the NBA draft, citing that he's not a first-round pick. The reason he says he's not a first-round pick because teams are telling him because Howard's season was canceled in January that they don't have enough film on him to see if he's a first-round draft pick or not, and I'm quite sure he's probably not worth the time and effort to fly him out there to go through drills and, and, and interviews to see if he's a first-round draft pick, see if he has talent of being a first-round draft pick. So what he said on Twitter, McCorp, maker, what he said on Twitter was, I've withdrawn from the 2021 NBA draft. My goal has always been to be a top-five pick or be a top pick in the NBA. The feedback from NBA teams is that because my college basketball season at Howard University was canceled, I'm a second-round pick at this time. They just don't have enough data to select me in the first round at this time. And he says that basically COVID-19 has been a two-year challenge for me. I won't allow it to change my goals. I couldn't return to Howard even with even the slightest chances of not having a season. So the experiment known as the five-star recruits, remember McCourt Maker decided that he was going to go to Howard. He picked it over a whole bunch of blue bloods over Kentucky and Kansas and others. He was a top 20 recruit. He was a five-star recruit. And this came during the the George Floyd situation, the Black Lives Matter movement, and everything that happened in the summer of 2020, where black pride and black communities really, you know, banded together, and we're going to make a change, and we're going to make an impact, and we're going to show that, you know what, it's a new day, it's a new time, and black folks ain't having it no more, and, and oppression, and discrimination, and everything that comes along with being black in this country, we're going to fight, we're going to stand up, we're going to do something about it, so McCord was all swept up in this 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 revolution, this this revelation that was going on. So he decided that instead of going to the schools like Kentucky and, and the Blue Bloods, where the um, where the makeup of the student body is predominantly white, that he was going to go to an HBCU, the historically black college and university, and really one of the top HBCUs in Howard University. So this was going to be like an experiment. This was going to be a, a, a situation where is this something that's viable for five-star recruits to go, one and dones to go until the NBA decides that you can go straight from high school to the NBA. Until then, this could be something that's, that this could be something that uh, could be worthwhile for a guy who's a five-star recruit, someone who's from an area where it's predominantly black. He wants to continue his education. He wants to go to a school that's going to embrace him, that he's not going to feel out of place, that he's not going to uh, be the minority within the majority of other races, faces, and places, that he could go to a place where even if he comes from an impoverished area, if he, even if he comes from the ghetto, even if he comes from low income, even if he comes from an area that's low achievement, you see drugs, you see crime, you see all of these um, things within this community, which is predominantly black, all of a sudden he goes to an HBCU and all of a sudden for the first time, maybe in his life, he sees an expansion. He sees the uh, amount of people who are doing things, who are, who are articulate, who are intelligent, who are, who are bringing different things to the table, who are black. 
So it's like, you know, I grew up in a neighborhood where people looked like me, but they were selling drugs and they were doing crimes and they were doing this and they were going to prison and all this kind of stuff, alcohol abuse and fathers not being around. Now, all of a sudden, I go to a HBCU, I go to a Howard, I go to a North Carolina A&T, I go to a, a, a Norfolk, I go to one of the HBCUs and all of a sudden I see people who look like me, I see people who are from the same background like me, but I see people who are bucking the trend of what some of those communities that I came from would say would be sellout, would say would be acting white, would say would be, uh, you know, not keeping it real in terms of their, their articulation, in terms of their intelligence, in terms of them wanting to do something besides play sports or rap or dance or act or something like that. We, I'm going to be in the same classroom of people who look like me around the same age as me who are want to be doctors, who want to be engineers, who want to be lawyers, who want to be social workers who want to do other things and they speak with intelligence and they speak with articulation and they have the same pride within who they are that I have. And for that, I can feel more comfortable. For that, I can, um, you know, be more of me and I can learn who I am and I can learn there's a different side of me. And I translate that to the basketball court and it makes me a better basketball player because going to this HBCU is making me a better person by maturing, by growing, by learning. So that was hopefully the game plan that McCord Maker could show others who are five-star recruits, who are from the same conditions that he is in, even though McCord Maker is a little bit different because he's he was Sudanese, I believe, born in Africa, only came here for basketball. But, you know, I remember Mikey, Mickey Williams, uh, I believe the class of 2023, he was a guy that was experienced who was um, talking about, you know what, he's going to take a serious look at that HBCU and follow the lead that uh, Maker set. But now, after one season, and after only playing two games and really not doing anything, that he decided that not only is he not going to go to the NBA, he's not going to keep his name in the NBA draft, that he's going to uh, transfer to another school, and I doubt that he's going to be transferring to another HBCU, unfortunately. So McCord played only two games for Howard, never in front of the home crowd. And uh, the HBCU, I think it's going to, uh, I think that's going to be a devastating blow. I never expected all of a sudden Howard's and the Jackson States and the Texas Southerns is going to start recruiting like Dukes and Kentuckys and Kansases of the world. But I thought that possibly if Maker could go to Howard and have a, just a dynamite season. And because of that, because of the interest that would be going into a decision like that, that all of a sudden there'd be other uh, uh, ESPNs and ESPN2s and ESPNUs and Fox Sports and others that could start lending more visibility and attention to those schools that would make it even more attractive for those players to go to those schools rather than to sit on the bench at a Kansas or sit on the bench at a Villanova or sit on the bench at a UCLA, you know, it would be a situation where, you know, maybe you're not going to be getting three or four five-star recruits, but if you could get, you know, a couple of guys in the top 100, if you could get a dream scenario would be if an HBCU could pull in a player who's ranked in the 40s or the 50s. I mean, that's the way a Gonzaga started. And you take a look at their prominence, you take a look how strong they are today. Gonzaga didn't come out by getting the um, number one recruits and the five-star recruits and the Chet Holmgrens and the Jalen Shrugs of the world right off the bat. Their program was built off of two- and three-star recruits, mainly two-star recruits, and thinking outside the box to bring in talent to uh, where other high-profile, highly successful basketball, college basketball programs weren't going. 
And because of that, slowly but surely, Gonzaga started to grow and grow and grow, and they became the Cinderella story to the little engine that could, to a really good team, to a really, you know, solid basketball program, and now they're an elite basketball program. Now they're, they've surpassed, at least for the time being, they surpassed the Kentuckys and the Dukes and the Kansases and the Villanovas and the UCLAs and even the Georgetowns. So, you know, a dream. I have a dream. I have a dream. I had a dream that one day that uh, Howard University, which has the most gorgeous, beautiful, attractive, and intelligent females walking this planet on a, co- on a college campus, that a Howard, that a North Carolina A&T, that a Maryland Eastern Shore, that a Texas Southern, I mean, uh, that, that some of these HBCU schools could make moves to where, you know what, they are not just cannon fodder for the top schools in the country, that possibly in five to 10 years that they would be a team that, you know, making the NCAA and being a top 25 school on a semi-consistent basis would be something that's a, that's realistic and not a dream. But now with McCour not uh, transferring, now McCour's transferring away from Howard, I think that uh, we moved away, unfortunately, from those type of impactful basketball players to go to a HBCU school and start making inroads because the more attractive, the more attention that uh, athletic programs can get, especially if you're speaking about basketball and football, football, basketball, the more it helps the university itself. No coincidence that the teams, that the schools where they have a strong basketball program and a strong football program also, you see enrollment go up, you see donations go up, you see contributions go up, and you see other things happening in a positive way for the school. So McCord deciding, deciding to pull the plug after one year and two games at Howard University, I think, cripples the chances of HBCUs ever being semi-relevant in college basketball and for football. Forget it. It's just not happening. Wendell's World of Sports. I'm your host, Wendell Wallace. So glad that you could be with us. So that's what I wanted to get off my chest concerning that. But I also want to end now with a martyr known as Maria Taylor. As you know, she's found a new position. Yes, Maria Taylor of ESPN. Talented, beautiful young lady who, you know, was uh, one of her colleagues where was caught talking bad about her without her permission, without her uh, intention, without her notice. And because of that, you know, Maria Taylor you know, came out and, oh, poor Maria Taylor's like, sweetheart, a woman's talking bad about you behind your back. It happens. Welcome to real life. Welcome to adulthood. It, it's, it happens. I'm quite sure when you go to NBC Sports, Maria, I guarantee you there's going to be someone, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, somebody is going to be talking some shit about you. It's going to happen. Now, if they're going to be irresponsible enough to get caught saying it on film or you know recorded saying that type of stuff, well, that's on them. But I, I, I thought the, I thought the. Um, and I mentioned it before on my podcast, I thought that the reaction was just a tad over the top. I mean, she comes out on Twitter after a couple of days and talks about, in these dark times, and it's like, all right, all right. And someone you, someone was caught talking bad about you. Believe me, it happens to me, it happens to you, it happens to everybody. I talk shit about people behind their back all the time also. Give me a fucking break. You know I mean? It's just, just you know, the, the, Rachel Nichols didn't come to your house and break into your house and defecate in your bed and write, you know, get lost nigger on the uh, walls or and, and, and damage your things or anything like that. I mean, she wasn't conspiring to uh, get you fired or anything like that. Rachel, Mo- Rachel Nichols had a bad moment. She had a weak moment. She made a bad choice. 
in terms of voicing her opinion and her thought patterns. It got caught. It happens. Welcome to real life. Ain't nobody's perfect. So, I mean, you know, Maria wants to go ahead and play that for the, you know, want to play the victim card for that. Okay, whatever. That's her choice. Good luck to her. Good luck to her. No anger, no this, that, any other, but good luck to her. Hope she does well. She will do well. She's a very talented person. And as I mentioned before, she, she's beautiful. She's intelligent. So there you go. But so days after covering game six of the NBA finals for ESPN, she made her NBC debut this past Friday ahead of the network's NBC's prime time replay of the opening ceremony for the Tokyo Olympics. And anchor Mike Tirico, the guy who didn't realize that he was black growing up, True statement. I couldn't make something like up like make something up like that. Introduced Taylor at the top of the network's telecast. And Taylor's job at NBC is going to be something where she's going to be doing uh, you know reporting, and she'll be doing the Olympics, and she'll be a host and contributor for NBC uh, Sunday's NFL pregame show, Monday night, and uh, football night in America, the network Super Bowl coverage in the years that it airs on NBC. Uh, so you know she's got uh, she's got a, 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 a really good, excuse me a really good uh, situation there and, and I wish her luck I wish her nothing but the best of luck and uh, you know hope she stays happy and she becomes the next Robin Roberts which she wants to be but I was reading an article which which was written by Jib Weber of Awful Announcing and it was handicapping the candidates to replace Maria Taylor on ESPN's College Game Day and you know ESPN. You know, left its replacing his female uh, college game day co-host and then ABC Saturday Night Football sideline reporter position for the second time in four years. So this is pretty important. The qualifications for the position left by Taylor, according to Weber, is uh, you know they need a woman to balance out the show's all male core of Reese Davis, Desmond Howard, Lee Corso, Kurt Kurt Street. Can't believe Lee Corso still on there. Jeez. And it had to be an internal replacement based on the position's past turnover and ESPN's current financial situation. So they can't go searching somewhere else. They can't pluck somebody off of Fox Sports or some local place or something like that. So the candidates that was was given by Weber to possibly replace Taylor was Holly Rowe, Laura Rutledge, Molly McGrath, Allison Williams, and Katie George. Now, I don't know any of these women. I've never spoken to any of these women. I don't think I've ever spoken to anybody who knows any of these women. So this is my opinion coming from a place that's far, far off. I'm quite sure if you ask people of each one of these females who know them for real will probably dispute and probably um, disagree with my thoughts and opinions about these ladies, and that's fine. I just want to go ahead and give you, you know, my contact before I start talking about um, these females. Not personally. I'm just talking about as far as, you know, the candidates to replace Maria Taylor. So you go to Holly Rose. She's been at ESPN for over 20 years in a variety of roles and several years ago even worked while battling skin cancer. She was also the sideline reporter for ESPN's Top Afternoon college football broadcast team alongside Joe Tessitore and Greg uh, McElroy, Laura Rutledge. They say that reminds people of Aaron Andrews, both are University of Florida alums, a total natural on camera and seem destined for much bigger things. So on her resume, Rutledge has been a college football sideline reporter, co-host of Get Up and currently the host of NFL, currently the host of NFL Live and the SEC Network 
of game day on the SEC Nation. Molly McGrath is a former Boston College cheerleading captain, started her ESPN career as a production assistant, has worked her way all the way up to ESPN's top Saturday night game broadcast, currently splitting its sideline reporting duties with Todd McShay. Williams has been at ESPN for a full decade as a solid college football and basketball sideline reporter, and she was paired with Maria Taylor, uh, the second sideline reporter for last season's nat- national title game between Ohio State and Alabama. Kay- Katie George, uh, strong Allie LaForbes vibes as a former college sports athlete, athlete and beauty pageant title holder. She's worked at ESPN operated ACC Network just two years as the current sideline reporter for the top ACC Network game each week with Dave O'Brien and Tim Hasselbeck. Now, all right, the one thing about all of these things, I've always said it before, I think that sideline reporters are a waste of time. I don't give a damn who you are. I don't give a damn if you're a woman. I don't give a damn if you're a male. I don't give a damn if you're straight. I don't give a damn if you're gay. I don't give a damn if you're an athlete. I don't give a damn if you've never been an athlete. I don't give a damn if you're black, you're white, you're Hispanic, you're Asian. I don't give a damn if you're a conservative or a Republican. I don't give a damn if you're good looking or not good looking. I don't give a damn if you're old or you're young. I don't give a damn if you're fat or if you're skinny. I don't give a damn. Sideline reporters to me are just a fucking waste of time. As long as it, 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 the, the the backstories and all of this other bullshit, I just have no no use for. I don't give a damn if you're Malika Andrews. I don't give a damn if you're in her prime Rachel Nichols. I don't give a damn if you're uh, I don't know name anybody else. I don't just don't care. I don't care. I just. If they would go away, the sooner the better. It's a complete fucking waste of time and a joke on top of jokes. Every time these first and third quarters where these uh, folks interview the NBA coaches, it's a joke beyond belief when they used to interview the uh, college coaches at the end of the uh, first half. I think they still do. I think it's a fucking joke. You know, when the game is over, when the game begins, where they ask these fucking stupid-ass questions, it's a fucking waste of time. It's a joke show. It's a clown show. I have no use for it. When they do the, hey, you know what? He's, you know, quarterback X has got a concussion. His return is doubtful or something like that. That's fine. But when they start giving us this bullshit, this nonsense, these these stories to accompany the game itself, it's like, shut the fuck up. Trying to watch the goddamn game. I really don't give a fuck about what this guy did in the offseason. I really don't give a damn about his background. I really don't give a damn about what he thinks about this, that, and the other. I'm trying to watch the fucking game, and I really don't give a flying fuck about it. Shut the hell up. So, for me, sideline reporters, I don't give a damn who you are. Just the sideline reporting in itself, to me, has always been a fucking joke and always been a waste of time. But, if you're going to go that route, and I take a look at the candidates possibly given by ESPN or those who have been thrown out there, Holly Rowe, Laura Rutledge, Molly McGrath, Allison Williams, and Katie George. Okay, can we, what What the hell? Nobody of color, huh? No black women uh, who are possible candidates, huh? No Asian folks of candidates. No Hispanic folks. No nothing, huh? Just your straight white women. Outside of Holly Rowe, they all fit the same damn thing. They're all semi-attractive, allegedly, all young, blonde hair, blue eyes, white skin. There you go. It's the same shit. You can get each one. Go to the fucking mall and buy one of these off the fucking rack. 
You know, go to Toys R Us when they still have them and buy them off the children's the the the, 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 the row eight. Give me a give me a break, will you? Damn, you know. And, and then you go with those of Allison Williams, Molly McGrath, and Katie George, beauty pageants and cheerleaders. Why do what the what? Why do I give a flying fuck? They were. What did that have to do with the job itself? I don't give a damn. I mean, what what did that have to do with anything? So now, not only do you have to be white, you have to be young, you have to have blue eyes, you have to have blonde hair and white skin. Now, all, on top of that, you also have to be a beauty pageant. Now, all of a sudden, now you have to be a cheerleader. What the fuck do they have to do with doing your job? It makes no sense to me. I know what it means, especially on television. I get it. But then again, damn, I'm not there to watch. I'm not there to watch these females do that shit. I'm there to watch the game. So it's just very disappointing and very. Going back to the word disappointing, I guess, the adjective disappointing that we're speaking about possible candidates for the replacement of Maria Taylor, and it's back to the same old shit. The best possible candidate, if they were going to do this, would be Holly, would be Holly Rowe. She's the best one. She's the most qualified. And she getting bad in terms of what she does or stuff. I can somewhat, almost, kind of like, uh, you know, deal with it. But then again, you know, you're talking about a female who's old and doesn't look as attractive as the other candidates. So, oops, sorry. So it really doesn't matter you know, how long you've worked. It doesn't matter how skillful you are. It doesn't matter how good you are at your job. If you're not a cheerleader, if you're not a beauty pageant, and you're not somewhere in your mid-20s to mid-30s, sorry, we have no room for you. Once you reach 31, 32, 35, you're done. Then we'll go ahead and get this. We'll get the next fucking blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white-skinned jackass who comes in there and gives us some bullshit asshole who gives a fuck story about this player or this coach. Wonderful. Awesome. <sighs> Man, this is fucking ridiculous. If that, if that shit, if all of a sudden sideline reporters were obsolete, would you, would making, would, would you watch a football game or watching a football game, would that experience be any less... Like, for instance, if you were going to watch Alabama and Auburn, if you're going to watch Alabama and LSU, if you're going to watch two really good teams play football or play basketball, or if you were going to watch the Super Bowl or really an important game and you found out that there weren't going to be any sideline reporters, would you still watch? Would you sit there and be like, oh, man, man, the game of the century right here, number one versus number two, undefeated Ohio State versus number two Alabama for all the marbles. This is going to be great. I can't watch. What? Wait. Huh? Oh, they're not going to have any sideline reporters for the game? Oh, fuck that bullshit. Let's see what... Ah, get the hell out of here. Let me go read a book or go for a walk or something like that. Ah, the hell with that. I thought they were going to have sideline reporters in this game. Well, I'm not going to watch... I'm not going to watch the game then. Never made any sense to me. So, you know, just whatever. I just wanted to get that off my chest. <laughs> Jesus. Sideline reporters, it's the same shit. The same... Same bullshit as it always has. All right. It is now almost 1.30 in the morning, and I am drop-dead tired. So I'm going to say goodnight. I'm going to say sayonara. I am going to say I'll talk to you later. I'm going to say be grateful to everybody. Be respectful to everybody. Love, peace, unity, harmony. Listen, learn, educate. Do all those things. Do what you need to do to make yourself a better person. I'm feeding fast. I'm going to fall asleep before I fall asleep. I'm going to say goodnight, and I'm going to say <gasps> music.
Dark of the bay, 